Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. I even told, I even told people that back when... Uh... Clarence Thomas was being appointed to the Supreme Court. Say, man, that's a stone, Tom. Everybody, I said, you know. I said, yeah, well, I said, but you didn't have nothing to do with him being there. One thing. And you ain't going to have nothing to do with him leaving. And if you do have something to do with it, they'll replace him in five minutes if they want to. They don't have to go through you and ask you nothing. If they want Clarence Thomas to be your spokesperson, that's what he's going to be. And ain't nothing you can do about it unless you can deal with them. Something happened today that hasn't happened in more than a decade in the Supreme Court. Justice Clarence Thomas actually spoke, shocking the world with a question during oral arguments as that court considers limiting bans on people convicted of domestic violence from owning guns. Think about that. So, just what was going on back in February of 2006? The song that topped the Billboard charts was Beyonce and Slim Thug's Check On It, and Crash was a couple of weeks away from being named Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Across the pond, at least six men pulled off the biggest heist in British history, nabbing more than $90 million from a bank in Kent, England that day. These were different times, to say the least. Since Justice Hanson and Scalia, a very good friend of Clarence Thomas's past, many have speculated that we'll hear more out of the man who succeeded Thurgood Marshall. His stance is that it's his job to rule, not to talk. Fair enough. So while I don't always agree with him, I do respect him for doing something that not many of us spend enough time with every day. Listening. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. Now, it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay, but we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane, and to be sure that all of the bags were checked, and to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully, and we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis, and some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out, or what would happen to me from some of 
our sick white brothers. Good evening to you. I'm Greg Kerr. And I'm Jasmine Stiles. You're watching 6 News on Fox. We start with breaking news out of Beaumont tonight. Someone opened fire at a Jefferson County Sheriff Candidate's headquarters. Kara Dixon joins us now live. Kara, what happened tonight? Greg, Jasmine, witnesses here say they saw someone open fire, uh, maybe one bullet striking a window here at Zena Stevens headquarters off 11th Street in Beaumont. Now you can see that people are working to try to fix this window, and they say that someone shot at the building around 7.30 this evening when there were volunteers here getting ready for tomorrow's elections in the primary. Now they think that it was a BB gun or a pellet gun, and I am joined here with Zena Stevens, a candidate for sheriffs. Now, uh, Ms. Stevens, you know, what happened or, you know, what reaction did people have when this happened? I know you all were in the building with about 30 people. Can you describe what the feeling was like? Yeah, you know, we were given assignments and getting ready for tomorrow for, you know, election day. Um, you know, uh, we had some people leaving. The meeting was breaking up, and so we had several people outside um, getting ready to leave and, and get ready, um, you know, to end their evening. And um, we all heard a loud, I, I just escorted somebody to their car, and I heard a loud crash, you know, um, a bang and a crash, and then you know we all rushed and and, and saw the window. Um, some of the guys were outside, Chuck Guillory and some others, and so they saw the car speed off. And the parking lot was full, and so they tried to get out get out of the parking lot and follow. And you know, what does this mean for you guys? Or you know, what would you say to the person that did this while there were a lot of people inside of all ages? You know, how scary was that knowing that you're getting ready for the primary and this was a packed building and someone would would shoot at the, your headquarters? Well. I think it's just an example of ignorance. Um, whether we're getting ready for an election or not, it's just an example of ignorance. Um, anytime you know you try to hurt somebody, um, you know whether it's a pellet gun or BB gun, it's just ignorance. Um, it's not going to deter. We're going to keep doing what we've been doing, you know, working on our campaign um, and getting ready for tomorrow. And did the, they yell anything in specific, or you know what happened, or are you? Yeah, they yelled some racial slurs. Um, you know, as they pass by. And what are you guys, is this going to stop you guys going tomorrow or how are you going to build off of this? And No, uh, you know, I understand that there's ignorance, you know, in our community. I understand there's ignorance in this country. And so it's a part of life. Unfortunately, we're just going to keep doing what we've been doing, getting ready for the election tomorrow. All right. Thank you, Zena. Thank you. Now, uh, we'll have more as this story continues to develop. Stay tuned with 6 News on Fox and also KFDM Online for more. Reporting live in Beaumont, Kara Dixon, 6 News on Fox. In Spain, there are more than 600 members of parliament. For centuries, not one has ever been a person of color. Until now, reporter Lauren Freyer introduces us to modern Spain's first black member of parliament, a nurse born in Africa. As Spanish lawmakers meet to discuss the migration crisis in Europe, all eyes are on one woman. She's the only national politician whose skin is the same color as many migrants to Spain. And she made a similar journey from Africa. Nací en Guinea Ecuatorial. I was born in Equatorial Guinea when it was a Spanish colony, explains Rita Bosao. My parents died when I was very young, and I came to live with a foster family in Spain. She was the only black child in a white foster family and in all of her schools. Compared to the rest of Europe, Spain is relatively homogenous. It's traditionally sent immigrants abroad rather than receiving them, especially back in the 1970s when Bosao was growing up. 
When I was little, I learned to read from a storybook about white explorers and black cannibals in Africa, she says. I grew up being scared of where I come from. She says her foster family taught her equality. She became a nurse and a social activist. And when Spain's new left-wing party, Podemos, came calling, she agreed to go into politics and won a seat in Spain's parliament late last year, the first person of color, male or female, ever to do so in modern history. Me siento humildemente orgullosa en la medida en que veo que... I feel humbled and proud and hope I can empower minorities, she says. There are lots of people who don't understand that I am Spanish. They see I'm black and think those two things can't go together. But Spaniards are changing. More than 10% are immigrants, though most are white from Latin America or Eastern Europe. Arab and African migrants typically want to go to more prosperous Northern Europe. Madrid City Hall is nevertheless draped in a refugees' welcome banner. And there is no major far-right anti-immigrant political movement here. This month's cover of Vogue magazine in Spain features a black model and the words, Black is beautiful. Waiting on a train platform as she shuttles between meetings, I ask Bosau if she gets recognized. And as if on cue, two strangers approach to congratulate her. Turns out she has some serious fans. I would love to have a Rita t-shirt. Danny Roseman is an African-American who's lived in Spain for five years. She's the community content director for Las Morenas de España, the brown girls of Spain, a forum for women of color. I'm proud of her. And I feel a closeness with her that I don't feel with any other Spanish politician ever. Um, and I root for her. And before Rita, I'll be honest, I wasn't really paying attention to the political scene as much. Bosau's left-wing party, Podemos, is criticized for promising dignity to unemployed protesters, but not yet backing that up with policy. Bosau has yet to author any legislation, but she's changed the typical profile of those who do. Like, it's always like a man that it's like, you know, the typical white man that it's there, and, you know, and now you have her, like, that's the new politics. And 18-year-old Aitana Christensen Ribera got to meet Bosau when the lawmaker visited her high school. During a Q&A session, another student, Rahma Mohammed, an immigrant from Northwest Africa, took the microphone and asked her MP a personal question. Hola, yo soy Rahma, y te quería preguntar un... People in Spain see me differently, she says, and I worry they value me differently. How can I convince people I'm Spanish just like them? You and I, we're exactly the same, Bosau told the girl, smiling. We're minorities, we're paying our taxes, and we have voices. I think I can help. For NPR News, I'm Lauren Freyer in Alicante, Spain. I mean, for the longest time, people have been saying, well, I love Bernie, but of course he can't win. That's right. Now it looks like he can win, but his biggest problem is in the black community. The brothers don't like him. Why? Oh, no, that's not true. Oh, it is. I have 82% of blacks. Because we don't know Bernie. Once they get to know Bernie and recognize, (laughs) it's true. Okay. Brother Bernie Sanders represents... The politician, he's a grand exemplar of integrity in public life at the national level. He represents the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., Fannie Lou Hamer, and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and Dorothy Day, and I would add John Coltrane, too. <laughs> because the Bernie Sanders campaign is a love train. But you have to... <laughs> 
That's what it is. As voters went to the polls Saturday for South Carolina's Democratic primary, presidential candidate Hillary Clinton crushed rival Bernie Sanders, winning the primary by a staggering 73.5 percent of the vote and picking up 39 additional delegates, compared to 14 delegates for Sanders. African Americans in the state favored Clinton over Sanders by more than six to one, while white voters narrowly preferred her as well. Clinton's decisive win propels her into this week's critical Super Tuesday voting, where a dozen states go to polls and about 880 delegates are at stake. It's the biggest day of the 2016 presidential election. Over the weekend, Clinton campaigned at two different predominantly African-American churches in Memphis, Tennessee. The Democratic race now becomes a broader national contest. The 11 states, along with American Samoa, that will vote during Super Tuesday include six in the South, with large non-white populations. Of the 880 delegates up for grabs, more than a third of those are needed to win the nomination. For more, we go directly to Columbia, South Carolina, where we're joined by civil rights activist and community organizer Kevin Alexander Gray. He edited the book Killing Trayvons, an anthology of American violence, and is author of Waiting for Lightning to Strike the the fundamentals of black politics. Kevin Alexander Gray, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you talk about the primary in South Carolina, its significance, who voted? We'll first talk Democratic uh, primary politics, and then we'll talk about Donald Trump and his hesitance to disavow the Klan and David Duke's support. Well, I'm glad that the, all the candidates are gone. I think people have reached that burnout stage. But Obviously, on the Democratic Party side, you, even expressed by that clip you showed with Bernie Sanders in Minnesota. Bernie Sanders went to Minnesota before the uh, votes were counted here in South Carolina. And, when, and, and before um, the, the, the Friday before the election, CBS News led with a piece about the, uh, the upcoming Saturday primary, where they showed Bernie Sanders in Minnesota surrounded by an all-white crowd and then Hillary Clinton in two locations in South Carolina, surrounded by black people, surrounded by Jim Clyburn. And that's been the story of Bernie Sanders' campaign, even here in South Carolina. It's, it's been a, a tour of colleges, a tour of black colleges, a tour of uh, st uh, state colleges, but never any penetration into the black community, uh, not even being able to go a block away from those colleges to actually go out into the community. And uh, when, when you look at the mailers that, that uh, Bernie Sanders sent out, one particular mailer that comes to mind is the one that he sent with the, the young black male with it behind bars. Uh, with his hands behind bars and one with a diploma. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton is sending out mailers surrounded by black women in particular. The electorate here in South Carolina, the Democratic electorate, is 60 percent black, and that electorate is 60 percent black women. So, you know, if you're going to come down here and you're going to run a, a northern liberal kind of campaign, if you come down here and you talk about revolution and movement, but your campaign doesn't look like the movement you claim to represent, I think people go with the devil you know. The other thing that people are not paying attention to in this huge victory that Hillary Clinton had over Bernie Sanders is the fact that so many people didn't vote from 2008 to 2016. I would say that a lot of those people that didn't vote didn't vote because of their, uh, their uh, reticence to the Clintons and what happened between them and Obama and understanding that history. But while Bernie Sanders 
I, I hate to say it, while he's talked about a movement campaign, he hasn't run a movement campaign. He's just run a campaign. And if he's talking about something long-lasting to, to build out in the communities, well, he hurt himself here in South Carolina. He left South Carolina like the first defeat of the North in Bull Run. And the, to not be with his people in defeat that, that went out and did the best they could let you know what he thinks about black voters in some people's minds. I think it's going to hurt him tremendously in the South moving forward. Um, according to Think Progress, more than 33,000 people in South Carolina are behind bars, and 62 percent of the prison population is black. Most of those eligible—most of those people are not eligible to vote. In 2012, the South Carolina legislature took voting rights away from state residents on parole, and today, more than 48,000 South Carolina residents in prison on parole and on probation are disenfranchised by felony or misdemeanor convictions, African-Americans making up 64 percent of South Carolina's disenfranchised population, even though they comprise only 27 percent of the state's voting age population. One out of every 27 African-American voters is disenfranchised in South Carolina, compared to one out of 65 South Carolina voters. Your thoughts on let, this? Kevin? Let me say this, Amy. Let me say this, Amy. First of all, that's a problem in and of itself, that the discussion on black politics starts talking about criminal justice issues and prisons. Black voters want the same thing that white voters want. They want to be able to pay their house payments, to pay the mortgages, to pay the rent, to pay their utility bills, to pay their taxes, to educate their kids. And when you think that the, that the whole foundation of black politics is just about talking about criminal justice and crime, well, that's playing a stereotype in and of itself. And while there are a lot of black people in jail in South Carolina, disproportionately, and we understand the effects of structural racism, we still have a million, close to a million eligible regist uh, uh, black voters in South Carolina, and, and probably close to 600 to 700,000 registered voters. And when you look at the results from 2008 to 2012, uh, and the number of people that didn't vote, that are registered to vote, that says something about the Democratic Party. That says something about someone telling them that, that they are waging a revolution, and it's not a revolution. If you want to talk about building and building a progressive movement, build a progressive movement, but do not come into South Carolina or anywhere where basically you've got the same kind of campaign that Hillary Clinton got. You've got white men on the top running it, and you come into the state, and, and all your surrogates are men. You have a, a, a program in Greenville, South Carolina, with Danny Glover, and everybody on the program's a man. And those kinds of things matter. But to start out just talking about crime, just talking about police, and using Black Lives Matter talking points, well, the, the, the black community, I believe, is more sophisticated than that. And if you're running a progressive campaign, you ought to have sense enough to know that you have to talk to people and tease out the issues a whole lot better than you did. Hillary Clinton is a neoliberal Democrat. The purpose of the Jackson campaigns in 84 and 88 were a counter to Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and the rise of the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Co Council, which Jesse called the, D the Democratic Leisure Class. And Bernie Sanders is supposedly running a campaign in that tradition, bringing people together, bringing coalitions of people together. Uh, 
I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing the nuclear activists and the peace activists and the Arab American community and, and the labor community and the black community have a real say in defining a platform that makes some sense. Now, Bernie has done—Bernie Sanders has done some wonderful things in his campaign. He's brought young people into the process. I hope he keeps them energized. But if the only mission is to say that you've pushed the Democratic Party to the left at the end of this process, then what have you accomplished? If we're talking about building something long-lasting and really changing the nature of politics, which means that you have to change it on the local and the state level, you have to tackle these state legislatures, you have to be prepared to tackle reapportionment and gerrymandering so that you can vote better uh, people into office to move on to Congress so you can actually change things. But to, if, if you're not going to do that, you're not you, you, you have to have agents of change. You can't simply be an agent of change by yourself. Who are you going to be supporting? I don't know yet. I might—you know, I support third-party candidates. I could possibly support a third-party candidate from the Green Party in the general election. I haven't supported the Democratic Party in a national ticket since 1992. I was in the room with Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition when Bill Clinton pulled a sister soldier. I was here in South Carolina as Tom Harkin's Southern political director marching in a public housing project with Jesse and Harkin when Clinton called him a backstabber. I worked with Harkin and wrote those ads with Adolph Reed, who now supports Bernie Sanders, to call Bill Clinton out on the execution of Ricky Ray Rector, a brain-damaged young black man in Arkansas. So, you know, I, I'm not supportive of neoliberal politics. I, if Bernie Sanders would, would tell people, explain the difference between what a progressive is and what a neoliberal is, which is what Hillary Clinton is, someone that supports war, that supports Wall Street, that supports privatization, a lot of things her husband did, like NAFTA and CAFTA, these are things that, that have almost decimated the middle class and increased the, the wealth gap. So those are things that neoliberals support. Some of the things they support are the same things that neoconservative support. It's just about who's running it. But Sanders also has to be against the idea of empire. If he's going to raise up the, uh, Martin Luther King's name and talk about mar marching with Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King said, a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that goes for Palestine and Israel. And neither the candidates, to include the progressive candidate, has dared step on that rail in this campaign. How am I to think that a so-called progressive candidate is really right on race and ethnicity and and, and the value of all humans and respect for human rights if he can't stand up for Palestine. I, that's important to me. But, you know, I don't want a so-called progressive campaign. For me, the foundation of that campaign has to be right. How it's constructed has to be right it, it, if, you're, if you claim to be a progressive. Uh, Bernie not doing well, I have to say, with the black voters there in South Carolina, which I don't get. The only alternative is a, a white woman with a big ass. Okay, I get it. I... Hillary Clinton is a politician. Boy, she is studied at it. And she's got consultants, and they study the map. They know what states are coming up. They're not unaware of that. So after South Carolina, she gave a speech. And as we were covering it live on the Young Turks, I said this was actually the most moving part of the speech. Now, I'm going to show it to you in a second. But I need you to understand the context of it. Context. So notice one prominent African American who was killed. She does not mention. Okay, and I noticed it at the time we were, as we were covering it live. Okay, and then 
Think about the states that are coming up. She just won in South Carolina with a huge percentage of the African-American vote. She's at that point about to head into Super Tuesday with a lot of southern states with huge African-American voters coming up. And then I'll tell you what was in her speech after Super Tuesday. But let's watch what was admittedly at the time a moving part of Hillary, in fact, the most moving part of Hillary Clinton's speech after South Carolina. Watch. I want to pay tribute to five extraordinary women who crisscrossed this state with me and for me. Five mothers brought together by tragedy. Sabrina Fulton, mother of Trayvon Martin, shot and killed in Florida just for walking down the street. Lucy McBath, mother of Jordan Davis, shot and killed by someone who thought he was playing his music too loud in his car. Maria Hamilton, mother of Dontre, shot and killed by police in Milwaukee. Gwen Carr, mother of Eric Garner, choked to death after being stopped for selling loose cigarettes on the street. And Geneva Reed Veal, mother of Sandra Bland, who died in police custody in Texas. They all lost children, which is almost unimaginable. Yet, they have not been broken or embittered. Instead, they have channeled their sorrow into a strategy and their mourning into a movement. So, the states that were mentioned there, uh, Texas, that was coming up on Super Tuesday. Florida, that's coming up on March 15th. Wisconsin, New York, all coming up, primaries that are coming up. So you think she is moved and, and hence decided to mention those uh, because, oh, she was in that mood? No, 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 no. It's all carefully planned out. And African Americans, I'm on your side. Look at all these people I care about. I mean, all you voters in the South that are about to vote on Super Tuesday and in all the states uh, in the cases that I mentioned, remember, I'm on your side. I care deeply. Now, wait a minute. Another very prominent shooting was Laquan McDonald in Chicago. I was waiting for her to mention that because obviously it's huge in the news, one of the biggest stories in the news. Actually, the cop there was charged with murder. That's how bad it was. Oh, right, she's supporting Rahm Emanuel. Black activists in Chicago are saying Rahm Emanuel should step down. She's not with them. She's with her old establishment buddy, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago. Conveniently, Laquan McDonald is not in that rundown. And then what happens after uh, she wins the southern states on Super Tuesday? Was there any speeches about African-American kids and, and their moms? No. No, that's gone. I already got your vote. I'm moving on. No, you know what was in her speech after Super Tuesday? About how much she cares about the workers of the Rust Belt. The Rust Belt, where they're voting next. Oh, it's so heartfelt, so heartfelt. Now, right before the voting began, she had already started to pivot to the right wing, uh, and uh, media was already applauding her. Oh, great job. So smart. That Bernie Sanders is already done. Go ahead and pivot right. And stop. you can now stop pretending that you're progressive. Yeah, we're going to go to the general election. And how about caring about African Americans? Well, she actually ran into a young African American woman who they had a little bit of a disagreement. And look at how dismissive she is. Now that she doesn't need that vote as much. Watch. I will have a very uh, comprehensive agenda to deal with a lot of the problems. And I'm very proud to have met with the American community and have a lot of support in this community. A lot of people, including you know, the young councilman who's here, who's a public 
You know what, dear? You have a different He is a Somali-American elected to the city council. I'm really proud of that. So, well, then why don't you go run for something then? You go, you, good. Well, good. Good luck to you. Thank <laughs> you. Why don't you go run for something then? <laughs> good luck to you. I don't need your votes anymore. I'm out of the Rust Belt. Oh, the Clintons are so pro-African-American. I mean, after the mass incarceration and after uh, calling African-American kids super predators, oh, they might have meant white kids too. After saying they need to be brought to heel and after you already got their votes, I have a black politician on my side, please. Why don't you run along and and run for something? (laughs) She thought I meant that earlier speech. That's so funny. That's who Hillary Clinton is. Mama says police misshoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? Authorities have released the preliminary police report and preliminary autopsy of the black man who was shot and killed by a white police officer in southeast Raleigh on Monday. The preliminary autopsy shows that 24-year-old Akil Denkins was shot four times, once in the chest, once in each arm, and once in the right shoulder. And the Raleigh police report says Dankins pulled a gun on Officer D.C. Twitty before Twitty fired his weapon. The investigation isn't over. WNC's Jorge Valencia has been following the case and joins us now. Hello, Jorge. Hello, Frank. I'd like to start with the police report. What does that say about what happened that day? Okay, so this gave us the most detailed narration of the incident that day. And it happened uh, just at about noon on Monday, and uh, Officer D.C. Twitty was wearing his uniform, and he was driving a police cru- cruiser in uh, southeast Raleigh, just southeast of uh, downtown. And he, uh, he was on Bragg Street, which is a small residential street, and he, he identified uh, Dinkins. Um, so he, he pulled over, he got out of his car, and he started uh, approaching Dinkins up. But um, as police have said, Dinkins had an outstanding a felony drug uh, a warrant uh, for his arrest. When, uh, according to the report, when Denkin saw him, he started walking away, and then a foot pursuit ensued. Eventually, um, they went around the corner, and they wound up in the backyard of a house, uh, and in that backyard is where the shooting happened. And uh, this is the really key piece of information. The, the report says that they engaged in a struggle, and during the struggle, Denkin's reached for a handgun that was in his waistband and the front part of his pants. When, when Dinkins did that, the officer uh, shot him. And then uh, at that point, uh, Dinkins appeared to be still be motioning, uh, this is what the report said, motioning his weapon at the officer and with his other arm appeared to uh, make contact with the officer's weapon. So the, uh, the officer was, was, according to the report, fearful for his life, and he shot uh, Dinkins again. That's what that's what this report that the police uh, released yesterday says. Separate from that, we have uh, a preliminary autopsy report that uh, the district attorney's office released, and it, it says that Dinkins was shot four times, once in the right side of his chest, once on his right shoulder, once on his right arm, and once on his left arm. Going back to the police report, is it based on uh, testimony from outside witnesses, or is all the testimony in the police report Officer Twitty's uh, commentary? Well, it, the report doesn't say who, who the source of the information is, but it does appear that it is Officer D.C. Twitty because at this point there aren't any recordings of, of the incident. Now, Officer Twitty did not turn on 
his, uh, his, his the blue lights on his cruiser when he got out of his vehicle, which is what would have activated the camera that's inside of the vehicle. Um, first of all, and second of all, they were, they were pretty far removed from the vehicle anyway. Um, and also, the the place where the shooting happened was in a backyard that was not very visible from from the outside. So the police, in the report, they said that they there weren't there haven't they haven't been able to find any witnesses who were privy to the entire incident. So it appears that at this point, the this information that we're getting can only be based on autopsy report and uh, Officer uh, Twitty's uh, testimony. And what about the autopsy report? Uh, is it clear, and is it the final report, that none of the shots entered uh, Dankin's body from the back? Yes, that, that, is, that is how it appears. Um, and, and it's important to highlight that this is, pre- this is a preliminary autopsy report, but it does appear that, that the bullets did not enter through the back. This is important to highlight because um, the, as, the, as the community has stepped in and as the NAACP has stepped in, they have said that neighbors have told them that, that they believed that Jenkins had been shot while he was running away, in which case the, he would have been wounded in the back. All right. Uh, so where does the investigation go from here? Well, at this point, the State Bureau of Investigation is the prime agency handling the, the criminal investigation. When they conclude their, their investigation, they'll hand over the report to the Wake County District Attorney's Office, who will then decide whether to file any criminal charges. At the same time, Internal Affairs and Raleigh Police is conducting its own inquiry, um, but that is to, to figure out whether or not any departmental policies were violated uh, during the incident. And at the same time, the attorney who's representing Jenkins' family, with the help of the NAACP, is conducting an independent investigation. The NAACP uh, commended um, the, the Raleigh Police Department. They say that, that they have so far um, have handled the situation uh, as it presented the, in, in the best way possible, but that they want to make sure that the investigation is thorough, is transparent, and is clear. So they are helping with an, an independent outside inquiry as well. All right, Jorge, thank you very much for talking with us. You're welcome, Frank. WNC reporter Jorge Valencia has been following the shooting of 24-year-old Akil Denkins in Raleigh. I want to be a cop. New information coming out tonight about a fatal police officer-involved shooting in Montgomery. One day after the officer, Aaron Smith, was charged with murder, the attorney representing the victim's family gives another version of the story. The family of Gregory Gunn hired a retired forensic pathologist to conduct a second autopsy. Their attorney gave the only television interview to WSFA 12 News reporter Brian Henry. What we're looking at here are some uh, illustrations. Dr. Jim Lawrence has spent more than 30 years as a forensic pathologist and estimated he's conducted 8,000 autopsies, including his time with the Alabama Department of Forensics. That's certainly suggestive of a defensive posture. Gregory Gunn's family hired Dr. Lawrence to conduct the second autopsy on Gunn's body. That was done on Wednesday of this week. See has been conducted. This is information that's just being brought to us and is certainly not being provided to us by the investigators in this case. It is important to note this is Dr. Lawrence's findings. We don't know yet what the conclusion the state has come up with. To my best approximation at this point, I believe this is an accurate representation of the number of shots uh, and their directions and their lethality. But we believe that when the autopsies are completed and the forensics and the criminalists complete their job, they will show that Officer Smith used 
legal and appropriate deadly force to defend himself. The family is set to bury Gregory Gunn Saturday afternoon. We also learned today Aaron Smith was offered a new law enforcement job outside of Montgomery, but turned it down to focus on his current legal issues on the advice of his attorney. Mark? All right, Brian, thank you. Also new tonight, Smith's attorney requested a preliminary hearing, which has now been scheduled for March 24th. And Gregory Gunn's funeral is scheduled for this Saturday at 2 p.m. It will be held at True Divine Baptist Church in Montgomery. Stay with us for continuing. Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Who told you to buy a brownstone on my block in my neighborhood on my side of the street? Yo, what you want to live in a black neighborhood for anyway, man? Motherfuck gentrification. Well. I have to get a latte. Latte? Sure. You going to sit down with this here and take it you know what's interesting? The other day I was walking in my neighborhood and I saw a black elderly gentleman that I hadn't seen in a couple months and he literally, his eyes flew open and he said, you're still here. And I went, yeah, and you're still here. Things have changed, haven't they? And we were like, yeah, black folks are disappearing. I'm not ready to sell. I am ready to sell yet, and I need them to leave me alone. Flyers, you know, stuffed in the mailbox. As soon as I see we buy houses, I throw them right in the garbage. Real estate, that's like the only way out of poverty to, to reach real wealth. When he bought it, there was still one or two tenants living in a building. Our agreement on the lease was that I will get it completely vacant, and that's how I got it. I live in bed -Stuy. I moved there four years ago with, like, lots of other white people. <laughs> And um, as a white person, I don't know what my white privilege is. You know, I, that's, that's part of it, right? It's ignorance. It's about not knowing the benefits that I have because I'm white. And, 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 and this neighborhood, I was in there 72 and a half years, and I love the neighborhood, the people, and the stink of it. I love it all, and I'm not going nowhere. You can't go anywhere. I ain't going nowhere. I'm not going nowhere. Gentrification is obviously a very... Um, hot potato type of word. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. You know what we really mean when we talk about gentrification? Money. And when the people who handle that money, money they loan or money they spend to put up buildings or money they move around to broker deals, when they try to give you an idea of how much is in play right now, they use words like tsunami and tidal wave. I'm Kai Wright. I'm an editor at The Nation magazine, and I'm partnering with my colleagues at WNYC to try and understand this moment. And there are a range of opinions on what's happening. What we don't talk about, actually, is race. Racism and systemic racism. My understanding is that that's what gentrification is, is when a neighborhood becomes valuable. And what makes that valuable is when white people decide that they want to live there or when wealth comes to the neighborhood. And most of the time, the people who have the wealth are white people. It's not the same everywhere. I mean, because it changes from neighborhood to neighborhood and block to block. So, you know, gentrification is a systemic phenomenon driven by global capital, and it has uh, its own characteristic in every single block and every single apartment building in every single city. And to me, uh, gentrification right now in New York City, to me, that's inevitable. But it doesn't mean it will always be, and it doesn't mean that it can't be changed or adjusted or tempered. 
by community activism and by political decision making. That was Rebecca Carroll, D.W. Gibson and Jim O'Grady. And as you can see, there's a lot to talk about. And we're going to try to cover it all over the next several weeks because this process is radically reshaping the city. In Brooklyn, which has always been a place where striving migrants from around the world could put down roots and claw their way toward the middle class, rents in some neighborhoods here have doubled and tripled in recent years. But it's not just here. Oakland, Oakland is now the fifth most expensive rental market in the country. And as Rebecca pointed out, it's not just about real estate. There's something happening in so many black and Latino neighborhoods. As the national economy has inched its way through a recovery, young professionals with money to spend and the developers who cater to them have revived their interest in cities, where people who are still struggling are feeling what can only be described as a push. So here in New York, Mayor Bill de Blasio, a progressive Democrat who rode into office on the back of outrage over inequality, he says he has a plan for controlling all of this change, a way to build more affordable housing without displacing people in the process. Well, maybe, but people are deeply suspicious. And we're going to try to understand why. Even the most optimistic real estate pros, and we have talked to them, didn't see gentrification moving so quickly across central Brooklyn. And neither did the waves of suddenly priced out residents. We've talked to them, too. Never, never, never I say... Well, the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. Never, never, never I say, because the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. Saturday in Anaheim, six Ku Klux Klan members arrived at a park for an anti-immigration rally. They wound up clashing with counter-protesters and things quickly became violent. In the end, three people were stabbed, one critically. The Anaheim Police Department says 12 people were arrested. Authorities now add that the five KKK members apprehended have been released because they acted in self-defense. Seven others who were seen beating these Klansmen and attacking them with wooden posts remain in custody. For more on what happened, we go now to someone who was actually there. Brian Levin is a professor at Cal State University San Bernardino and studies hate crime and extremism. Brian, it's good to have you back with us here on Take Two. Always. Thank you so much. Just wished it was better circumstances. Uh, absolutely. You can back it up a little bit and tell us why were you there at this protest on, on Saturday? Yeah, as a researcher, I've been researching hate groups uh, for decades, and one of the best places to try and get information and trend analysis is actually going to some of their events. You can get literature, see how many people show up, try to figure out how many members exist, what are some upcoming events, what are some issues uh, that they're looking at, and what's going on with respect to, to their leadership and their recruitment activities. So uh, it's, it's observational analysis that we try to do, and I uh, usually come with a notepad or uh, some index cards with some questions, and that's that's what I was armed with, uh, an index card and a pen. <laughs> and, a mobile fo- and a mobile phone, a I mobile think, which phone. we'll get to oh, in a right. moment. Right. But so tell me, what, what were you in the midst of doing? Things start to get heated and violent as uh, counter-protesters begin to clash with these KKK members. Where were you when this was happening? What were you doing? 
Well, I was I was uh, in the park waiting for the Klan to arrive. Uh, there was some confusion because the Klan was not clear whether they were going to come between 10 and 1030 or whether it was going to be between 1 and 130. Uh, so I, I was just biding my time thinking maybe I should have just stayed home and inputted grades. But in any event, uh, I saw a phalanx of black-clad protesters exiting the park uh, at a good clip. So I followed that, figuring that, you know, the Klan had arrived. Just from that, I'd been to a bunch of these rallies. Mm. Um, so what happened at that point was across Cypress Street, Cypress Street uh, kind of is one of the streets that makes the park a box. And the Klan vehicle was a black SUV that was on the far side, not the park side, but the far side of the street. It's a you know, very small street. Uh, and at that point, uh, the 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 SUV was uh, looked like it was trying to park, kind of parallel park, a little bit diagonal, and they were trying to get out their materials uh, when uh, they were attacked uh, by a uh, 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 some counter protesters. Some of which I'm sure were were not physically violent. Uh, some I'm sure were just seeing what was going on, taking photographs. Others were uh, were voicing their disdain, uh, appropriately so, for the Klan. But there were certainly others uh, that were uh, ready for a, uh, a violent conflict. Brian Levin, this is kind of extraordinary. I'm picturing you there talking to people. You've got your index card in your pen. All of this starts to happen. And this is why I mentioned the cell phone earlier. You actually, uh, I believe this is your footage that you shot. This is radio, so it's a bit hard to imagine. But you see this black SUV that you mentioned kind of speeding away, leaving one of the KKK members behind. Let's listen. Get away! Get away from this gentleman! Get. I would get out of here, sir. And Brian, that was you speaking, correct? Saying, get away, get away from this gentleman. Uh, who, who are you speaking to? And, and what was going on in your mind at the time? Here you are, a Jewish man providing aid to a KKK member. This is not something you see every day. Well, but, you know, probably not. But, you know, at that point, I wasn't having a deep philosophical in, introspective thought. Uh, what, what had happened was everything was moving. I was moving towards where the, the crowd was and the Klan vehicle. And there were battles on both sides, the driver's side and the passenger side. And I could make out something that was going uh, on beside, you know, the, the passenger side, where there was that, you know, this flag incident, and there were people hitting each other. But my my view was partially blocked by the vehicle, uh, and then when the vehicle left, actually three clansmen were left. One was having this uh, uh, fight, I guess, on the sidewalk. But then uh, I had already pivoted forward looking down the street, not to my right at the sidewalk, and I saw uh, two Klansmen uh, being chased, one of whom, and I, you know, I have to look at my video, either fell or was knocked to the ground, and at that point was stomped and beaten viciously uh, by some big characters. And then, if I remember correctly, and my, you know, the video rules over my recollection here, uh, I believe at that point 
uh, there was there were people who were uh, armed with either a metal rod and or wooden planks, uh, but certainly if it wasn't at that immediate time, it was right after that. So, but he was already in the ground being being kicked. I put myself over him, and there's a, a picture in the OC Weekly which which shows us with my arm outstretched, telling people to get away, do not hit him. Obviously, a lot going on at the time. Adrenaline's got to be rushing through your system. But now you've had a little chance to think about it. What do you make of it all? Why did you do the things that you did? Well, you know, I, I'm, a for, I'm a former NYPD, and you know, and we're we're trained when things happen uh, to to take certain action. And what one wants to do in this situation, I, I didn't make an analysis like, oh, this is a Klansman, or gee, I don't really like what they stand for, which I don't. Um, I've, I've represented victims of Klan intimidation, actually. But but what, what I saw was a person who was at risk of serious bodily injury or worse from uh, from some out-of-control assailants. And what happens with, with crowd activity is when you get a crowd where there are some people who are violent, then others will get violent, and then you start seeing uh, weapons of opportunity get produced. And when he was prone on the ground, he was at significant risk, because then you're at risk of, of being surrounded. So I wanted to do three things. One, command people to step back. Step back. Do not hit him. Then the other thing I wanted to do was to create some space between uh, the the violent counter protesters, and there were many that weren't, by the way, but they they weren't the ones that were chasing us, right? Um, to create some space and keep them moving. At the same time, I was videotaping the whole thing with my other hand, which is outstretched, which also uh, kept them back as well. What happened, I'm curious, after this video, what did the guy who you reached out to help, what did he say to you? Did he say anything to you? Well, I actually came there to, to, to interview the, 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 the Grand Dragon. So, um, I, you know, I got to ask him after things had settled down, you know, after the police had recorded off the area. Uh, and he was, he was injured. Uh, he said he had some broken ribs, and um, he actually bled on me because um, I, I thought maybe I was hurt, but I wasn't. Um, I was just kind of jostled a bit, um, but, but uh, you know, unscathed. Uh, but I spoke with him, uh, you know, why are you here? <laughs> what are the issues uh, that you're trying to uh, discuss? Um, how many members do you have? How many were here? Um, you know, uh, what do you think of the various presidential candidates? Um, what, are, what are the issues that you think are important? But I also took the liberty of asking him, how does it feel to have your life possibly saved by a Jewish guy? <laughs> How, and how was that one answered, sir? He said, thank you. I thank you. And he said, but he would have done the same thing for a, quote, colored person. He also said that Hitler was a great, uh, a great leader in the beginning and, and took Germany forward and that uh, the Holocaust did not happen. As your body grows bigger, your mind grows flower. It's great to learn, because knowledge is power. It's schoolhouse rocking, but you're both enough on your My stomach just dropped because I knew the kid that had done this uh, was the same kid. 
An exclusive WTOL investigation widens tonight. Another family steps forward claiming their Sylvania school's child was relentlessly bullied at school. And it doesn't end there. This mother claims her son's arm was broken months after their first bullying complaints went unanswered. Now that mom filed a police report in Sylvania this afternoon. Morning anchor Melissa Andrews brings us this new development tonight. Melissa, now this comes as another student at the same school. Students there were suspended in yet another bullying investigation of a child with developmental disabilities. Yeah, guys, I brought you that story at five of the student who was told to lick a push pop that had been dunked in a urinal. The two families do have some things in common. Both claim racial bullying and both claim the district didn't do enough. This McCord Road Junior High School mom says she wants her identity hidden so her sons don't face further attacks. Was called by a student the N-word um, three times. Comments being made to my boys because they are biracial. Um, they were once called bad chocolate. Um, on the bus, they were told that all black males are LD, which is learning disabled because black men can't talk. That was a year ago, but it didn't end with comments. She says in November, the bullying turned physical when a student, a teammate, broke her son's arm at wrestling practice on purpose. My stomach just dropped because I knew the kid that had done this uh, was the same kid. I just had that gut mother feeling. I didn't go to the police uh, initially because I was more concerned about the repercussions for my child. I went um, all the way up to the assistant superintendent. They think he feels really bad and then that was going to be the extent of it. She says that wasn't acceptable so she pressed on. They further looked into it and that's when um, they gave the consequence that the student could no longer wrestle. When I saw the incident of this other child and that it was also at the same school. Uh, I knew because I haven't gotten uh, the accountability I feel from the school for the student, I felt that it was um, essential that this, this kind of thing quits happening um, based on ethnicity, based on physical disabilities, because there is uh, I think in, in the eighth grade class, uh, a true uh, situation there. And with these two families coming forward, WTOL 11 talked with the school board president about allegations within the district of ongoing unaddressed bullying. Julie Hoffman says very few complaints have made it to her. The policy goes, you know, you start with the school administrator and then you move up to superintendent or one of his designees and then to the board. So maybe three times I'm not even sure that it's, it is three times in six years. Obviously a disconnect wow. there between what parents mm -hmm. are saying right. and what she's saying. I also reached out to Sylvania police this afternoon about the police report filed by the second mom you just heard from about the broken arm. I've yet to hear back from them. Uh, this mom says she turned over the x-rays and the documents to police for an investigation. Also looking ahead, we are uh, waiting to find out what, if any, charges will be filed from Sylvania police in that push-pop urinal investigation. Remember. No one is going to treat you special just because you are black. And now to that one school district on the defensive tonight as some serious allegations are made. We first told you about the bullying claims at Cinco Ranch High School last week. Well, now a parent says his daughter has been the target of racial slurs at Katy High School. Our Sion Rhodes is joining us live in Katy. Sion, as you know, Katy is a huge school district. Lots of parents are going to be watching to see how this is going to be handled.
That's certainly right, Bill. These incidents happen on two different campuses. They involve different students, but the parents say there's a common thread. A school district, they say, is not taking their concerns seriously. They are still intimidating or trying to intimidate my daughter. To hear Charles says his daughter has been the subject of racial slurs and bullying at Katie High School for the past month. The two students decided to call my daughter a nigger, a slave girl. You look like you'll be a good slave, nigger. Come fight me. He says it took a week for the school to remove the two white male students from her class, and it hasn't helped. These boys need to receive a severe, real punishment. Well, I feel like I'm being robbed of my education. Single Ranch High School student Honesty White was expelled from school after getting into a fight with girls she says were bullying her. They just didn't stop bothering me until I was forced to defend myself. She says the students sent threatening text messages saying, quote, I'm a kill Honesty, and quote, I'm bringing a gun, bro. I'm not even joking. This KDISD system supports bullying no matter what they say. The district says another student was disciplined in that case, but would not say how. They did not care because this is a young black child and the perpetrators were white. Had the roles been reversed and the perpetrators were black and the victim was white, they would have handled this case differently. KDISD says the incidents are isolated, but community activists say it's a sign of a larger problem. At the end of the day, you have an African-American superintendent who is allowing this to happen on his white campuses. Now, KDISD spokesperson tells me that the district takes these allegations of bullying and use of racial slurs very seriously and that the students involved were appropriately disciplined. But the district also says there's more to this story they cannot share. They claim they are limited in what they can say by student privacy laws. The parents, however, say their fight is not over. They plan to take their concerns to the school board. Reporting live in Katy tonight, Sion Rhodes, KPRC, Channel 2 News. New York, New York. High school can be a challenge, especially for students new to the U.S. Many speak little English and may be behind in their studies, but they have a right to that education. Now some refugees in New York State are suing their school district. They say the district violated their rights by directing many of them to English classes instead of to high school. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports. In New York State, you have a right to attend a public high school and earn a diploma until you're 21. That was Paul Senso Bree's plan after she left a refugee camp in Thailand when she was almost 19. She resettled in Utica, New York, about four hours north of New York City. And when she arrived, Bree says she knew she had a lot of work to do. I mean, I did not speak any English at all. I could barely say my name in English. So she went to a newcomer's program where a teacher from Utica's school district taught English to Bree and other refugees. Eventually, they asked to move on to high school. The teacher there told us, oh, no, you cannot go to a high school. And we were like, why? And they told us, oh, you were too old, you're 19 now. So by the time you're 21, you won't finish high school. You were just wasting your time. That was about eight years ago. And Bree says since then, other district employees have given similar explanations to refugees who speak little or no English and want to go to high school. That's why she helped organize a group of students to sue the Utica City School District. Their federal class action lawsuit says that for almost a decade, the district has discriminated against refugee students over 16. It was an open secret that refugees just knew within the community that once you were at a certain age and you're arriving in the country, you're just not going to get a chance to go to high school. That was one of the attorneys for the students, Phil DeGrange of the New York Civil Liberties Union. DeGrange says the district funneled his clients to alternative programs to mainly learn English, and it did not give them the choice to earn high school diplomas. They're putting them on a track where they can't become a doctor, where they can't become an engineer or a lawyer, and that is absurd. 
And that's the exact opposite of what our country's been built on, right? NPR asked for an interview with the district superintendent, Bruce Carum. His office referred us to the district's attorney, who did not respond to multiple requests before broadcast. But in a sworn statement filed in federal court, Karam says the district has not denied enrollment to any eligible students based upon their age. Karam is also asking a judge to dismiss a second similar lawsuit filed by the New York State Attorney General. He recently appeared on a local radio station, WIBX. We want to be able to provide the sound basic education, which is guaranteed under the state constitution. Right, right to all students, including our refugee population. But in order to do this, the funding formula has got to be fixed, and Utica needs to get its fair share. Utica is one of New York's poorest school districts. It's faced hundreds of layoffs and regular budget deficits. In fact, it's involved in a separate lawsuit that says public schools in Utica and other small cities in New York have suffered from underfunding by the state. Still, the state attorney general's office argues that Utica is breaking federal funding rules by discriminating against immigrant students. Justin Diebler is an assistant attorney general in New York. He says problems enrolling immigrants in schools have grown since the recent surge of unaccompanied children from Central America. The settlements that our office has reached have spanned northern, western New York, southern New York. We see these problems cropping up all over New York State, not simply in Utica. This week, his office announced another settlement with a district on Long Island. An investigation found that it was excluding immigrants over 16 from high school. Diebler says Utica is the first school district the state has taken to court on this issue. It's also the first one Patrick Tuizere has ever sued. He's 19 and one of the refugee students who filed the class action lawsuit claiming the district prevented them from going to high school. But now Tuizere leaves his family's apartment most mornings with the backpack strapped on. I had to be in school at 8 o'clock. That's because he's finally enrolled at Proctor High School with four other refugee students from the suit. He says they have a right to be there. We have a right to be in class, to study, you know. The children have a right to study. Both cases against the Utica City School District are still ongoing. Tuizere's attorneys say they want to make sure other refugees can go to high school, even if they don't have lawyers backing them up. Hansi Luwong, NPR News, Utica, New York. Cool, refreshing drink. Flint, Michigan is hardly the only city with a lead problem. Lead used to be all around us, in our water pipes, our gasoline, our paint, and we're still facing the consequences. We're going to talk about how lead became so omnipresent, how health experts figured out that it was hazardous, and why it took so long for lead to be regulated. My guests are David Rosner and Gerald Markowitz, authors of the book Lead Wars, The Politics of Science, and the fate of America's children. Rosner is a professor of history at Columbia University and a professor at its Mailman School of Public Health. He's the co-director of the Center for the History and Ethics of Public Health. Gerald Markowitz is a distinguished professor of history at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. They've both served as historical consultants and expert witnesses in lawsuits against the lead industry. David Rosner, Gerald Markowitz, welcome to Fresh Air. Are there other cities besides Flint that you're concerned about having lead pipes or other sources of lead in the water? Well, 
Essentially, yes. Uh, not only lead pipes, but also lead on the walls, lead in uh, the soil, lead in the air. The problem with lead is that it's now really everywhere, and uh, we've created a terribly toxic environment in all sorts of ways. In Washington, D.C., just a few years ago, uh, there was a tremendous scandal about lead in the drinking water and lead even in the public schools. And one of the unfortunate things is that we do not have a testing program for lead in public schools in the water. So we don't really know how many children are being exposed to lead in the water in their schools. When was lead in pipes outlawed? Well, basically, it stopped being used in the 1980s, but uh, lead has continued to be used in solder and lead pipes so that it remained possible to contaminate the water even in pipes, you know, up until 2014. So if you have pipes in your home that were installed before the 1980s, do those pipes probably have lead? Well, probably in the form of solder. Uh, not all pipes inside have lead, and certainly not all cities are using lead pipes. Uh, some water systems actually use copper and iron and cement as, as their piping source. So it's uh, often a problem in cities that were built between you know, the early 1900s, late 1800s, and the early 1940s and in cities where uh, cheaper housing sometimes exists because lead is relatively cheap, and in which uh, unions did not have any power uh, to make sure that lead was not used in their pipes. In the early part of the century, for example, in New York City, we don't have as big a problem with lead in pipes because many of uh, the unions demanded that we use copper, and essentially we, by happenstance, don't have that kind of problem. How do we know if there's lead in our pipes? Well, really, unfortunately, the only way to know is to actually test the water. And the EPA has uh, established levels of uh, 15 parts per billion of lead in water that should not be exceeded. But that's the only way to know is to actually test the water. And can you do that as an individual? No. <laughs> That's, uh, that you, you really need uh, somebody. I mean, you can collect the water That's and send it out to I mean. Can you collect it? A, and, who do you send it to? There are a variety of water testing places that you can test your water for all sorts of things. Uh, I mean, you can test it for bacteria. You can test it for other contaminants. Actually, I think in some places, uh, like in New York State, you can send it to a, a, a state testing agency. Every state has its own regulations. Every community has its own agencies. So it's difficult to really say who is the place to send it. So why is lead especially harmful to children, and in very small doses even? Lead is a neurotoxin. Basically, it interferes with the development of the brain, and uh, it causes IQ loss. It causes behavioral problems. It causes attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity, dyslexia. And this is today. When you talk about the effects of lead in children in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s, even into the 70s, you're talking about children going into convulsions as a result 
of having just little chips of lead that they uh, put into their mouths and and ate. It doesn't take very much lead to poison a child. That's really the shocking thing that we discovered when we were doing our research and our historical research. As early as the 19-teens and 1920s, they were documenting children who had absorbed lead on their fingers as dust and had put their hands in their mouth and actually began going into convulsions. They also had children who sat at their cribs and put their mouth on their crib or put toys in their mouth or were around furniture and absorbed lead that way. So it's not like you need a lot of it. Um, you know, the average can of paint in the 1900s to you know, around 1950 contained up to 50% of lead carbonate, which is lead. So it's a lot of lead, and it takes just a couple of grams of lead to send a kid into serious damage. So what we did essentially for 50 years is cover our entire nation uh, during the period when we the economy was moving from an agricultural society to an industrial society to an urban society. We built most of the structures that surround us even today in that period of time in inner cities and poor communities. And those were all being painted at one point or another during that 50-year period with lead. I mean, our cities expanded dramatically, and with it went the covering of this society with lead paint. Um, so when does when does the government start regulating lead? It's very late. The federal government certainly has no agency that can really regulate lead until the 1970s. We don't have the Consumer Product Safety Commission. We don't have NIOSH, National Institutes of Occupational Safety and Health. We don't have OSHA. You know, we don't have uh, the EPA until 1970. So one of the problems was there was no federal presence that could really pass regulation. In the late 1960s, when lead became a major issue for community groups, such as the Black Panthers and the Young Lords in New York, particularly, and there were methods for testing kids, it became a big political issue. And uh, there was a representative in New York named William Ryan from the Upper West Side, our neighborhood, who tried to pass national legislation and got some ordinances passed in 1971 uh, about the need to reduce the amount of lead and to identify it as a hazard for children in labels. And then in 1978, the Consumer Product Safety Commission passed a, a regulation basically banning lead for the use of paints that were meant for indoor use, in other words, in residences. So it was a very haphazard process because most of these regulations had to be passed at the local or at state level. And, uh, you know, these industries did a lot of lobbying to make sure they weren't passed at the local level. In 1972, the federal government uh, basically banned the use of lead in any federally subsidized housing. So that was really the first federal action. And what states did before 1972 was require warning labels that warned about the dangers of lead. And those warning labels would say that paint that was intended for interior use should not contain more than 1% lead. But, of course, surveys that were done after those ordinances were passed found that many stores were selling paint uh, for interior uses that contained much more than 1% of lead, not to say that even paint with 1% uh, 
represented a danger to children. It it should be mentioned that some communities actually did ban lead for indoor use. I mean, New York City in 1960 passed an ordinance saying you can't use it for indoor paints. I don't know how strictly it was enforced, but that's often pointed to as a kind of very small victory here. Have poor people and people in older housing been disproportionately affected by lead? And has that translated into disproportionately affecting African Americans? Absolutely. I mean, I think lead poisoning in children is one of the most important environmental justice issues that we have in the United States today. The Centers for Disease Control has uh, said that a child should not have more than five micrograms of lead per deciliter of blood. And they estimate that over 500,000 children have more than that level in their blood. And a disproportionate number of those children are um, African-American and Hispanic. I mean, one of the interesting things and terrifying things and horrifying things about this whole story is the use of race as a means of, in some sense, ignoring what was known for close to a century. In the 1950s, uh, we found these documents and these letters between people in the Lead Industries Association and even the federal government that basically say that the problem of lead poisoning will exist until we can get rid of all our old housing, and that will never happen. And the second point that they make is that it's only, as, as this is their quote, so please understand that, it's only a problem among Negro and Puerto Rican families and that it's probably due to the ignorance of those families that there is a problem with lead poisoning. They actually call the parents ineducable uh, parents, and they are blaming the children and their parents for the lead poisoning that is caused by the lead that they have uh, pushed to be put on the walls of houses all across the country. What exactly were they blaming the parents for? that they were not educated enough to keep lead away from their children, which, of course, anyone who has had a toddler knows that you can't keep a child's hands away from their mouths. And if they're crawling on the floor and there's lead dust on the floor, then they inevitably get lead into their bodies and they become lead poisoned. The irony, in some sense, for the industry is that in the 1950s, this kind of argument would work because people felt there's enough racism that you didn't really have to pay attention to these kids. Um, But in the 1960s, uh, as I mentioned before, community groups picked up on the fact that African-American children were at high risk and Hispanic children were at high risk. And they actually turned their argument on their head saying, well, our children, this is a paradigmatic disease. This is a model disease for racism and for poverty and the existence of poverty in America. So we begin to see this awakening of interest in this issue, mainly because of the social movements of the 60s and the early 70s, where suddenly we become aware of racism and we become aware of poverty. And we say that's not acceptable. In the 50s, it was still acceptable, unfortunately. You know, We started talking about Flint, and one of the crises of Flint was that the percentage of children ages five and below who were lead poisoned doubled as a result of their drinking uh, the water. 
But even in Pennsylvania, Allentown, for example, has uh, 23% of the children who are tested ages 0 to 5 with elevated blood lead levels. That compares to about 9% in Flint. Even in Philadelphia, 10% of the children have elevated blood lead levels. So this is really a national problem. Any city with older housing, in any city where uh, they've had white flight and African Americans and Hispanics have moved into old housing, is going to have elevated blood lead levels um, in its children. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, March 5th, 2016. So I have been told. Compensatory call-in. Looking forward to hearing from uh, listeners. Thoughts, observations from the past seven days. uh, News segments that we just heard, uh, as well as other things that have taken place on the plantation. Uh, Feel free to chime in. The number to dial is 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Looking forward to hearing from folks. Uh, as I said, we'll get to workplace racism uh, in the latter portion of the program. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Address again. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Listener-supported counter-racist radio fundraising for 2016. Uh, When you get to the blog, you will see the PayPal button on the top right corner. Uh, If you are not into PayPal, drop me an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, Thanks to all the folks who have invested, supported us, uh, kept us rolling for seven years plus. Uh, You can drop us an email. You can follow on Twitter at UntilJustice. At Until Justice, uh, tweet the program, uh, share it. You can post it on Facebook, all your social uh, media accounts. That also is very helpful. Uh, investing to get more non-white listeners, uh, if you think they would benefit uh, from this broadcast and get a better understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, and how it works. Uh, before I get to uh, some of the folks uh, who dialed in, uh, number one, Thomas in New York. Uh, I think he brought up when we were on the program. Uh, Monday, right at the end of the broadcast, uh, the segment that we played last week uh, about the rape uh, charges uh, that were dropped in Brooklyn. Now, this was last right at the uh, end of last week. These were uh, for a group of non-white teens, black teens, it looks like, uh, that were accused right at the beginning of the year uh, of raping a female in Brooklyn. And last week on the program, it was suggested that the uh, female and her father, the father was uh, committing incest and having sex with his daughter out in public uh, when all of this went down. And then they end up accusing uh, this group of uh, black teens uh, of raping uh, this girl. And he brought up uh, where is the information, the confirmation in, in a report that uh, this 
female, the daughter and the father uh, are indeed white. Uh, and I went back, I said I would uh, take time because I couldn't find it uh, at that moment on the air, the report that I aired uh, to substantiate. So I went back and looked and uh, they don't really have any photographs and none of the articles that I saw says it get, none of the articles gives a specific uh, racial classification uh, so I cannot substantiate whether or not they're white I haven't even seen photographs uh, I believe Thomas in New York and he can correct me if I'm wrong I believe he said that he saw like a blurred image of the father and it looked like this was someone who would be classified as non-white I haven't even been able to uh, track that down so I cannot substantiate it could be that these were uh, non-white people who made this uh, false charge uh, I will say that this sort of behavior, anybody who's familiar with Cynical Africans uh, website or even Thomas Jefferson, a little bit of U.S. history, world history, indeed, Jimmy Savile, that this sort of behavior reminds me a lot of what I expect from white people. But uh, I cannot uh, confirm, substantiate the racial classification of the victims. Uh, in fact, uh, today or not to, with the most recent article that wasn't published today it was published uh, within the last couple of days, uh, a news publication in New York they had an article where one of the attorneys for the wrongly accused young non-white teens, black teenager, uh, his attorney said uh, that he was very upset. He felt it was incorrect, unjust for them to not release the identification of the father in this case, since he is not an innocent victim and in fact was engaged in incest publicly, that there's no reason uh, that he should get anonymity and that his identity uh, should not be released, but they haven't done so. That also kind of leads me to suspect that these could be white people, but I certainly uh, cannot substantiate. We definitely want to strive for accuracy. I've been saying that that definitely works against the system of racism, white supremacy. I'd said I wanted to make sure we got that uh, addressed uh, at the beginning of the next program. Boom. If anybody does have confirmation, if you have seen uh, an image or if you have found uh, a report that I didn't see where it gives uh, information about the racial classification, that would be grand. Uh, real quick, uh, before I get to uh, folks who dialed in, uh, the incident with Aaron Smith in Alabama, this 23-year-old white male, uh, suspected race soldier who shot and killed uh, Mr. Gunn uh, in Alabama, uh, I think we talked before, I think this was uh, last year when we were talking about the age. It was a female caller, I, I believe. We were talking about the age of a lot of these officers in these cases being very, very young. Uh, Aaron Smith, this white guy, is 23, who was in this shooting. That's one. Two, his attorney, uh, who also looks like a white guy, I saw him on uh, television, uh, where he said, uh, in the metaphor, incredible, he said that Mr. Smith has been sacrificed on the altar of political correctness. That term came up uh, last week, and it's been even more and more prevalent. I suspect it's going to be a, a very heavily used term this year. But that was one thing he said. Uh, and also in the segment that I played on the program, they said at the end that he has been offered another enforcement job already, which I mean, if anything, to underline, this is not white privilege. This is white power, white terrorism, white supremacy, where a white person can be accused. Excuse me, not accused, a white person can be arrested and charged with murder. And the victim is not even buried yet. And you will have a job offer to be a police officer in another department. That is white power. Be very clear about what's happening. But I thought that was astronomically uh, important. 
Uh, the only other thing I will get in before we get to the callers, I think we should have a new term. I've been trying to think of uh, a label. The phenomenon, the practice when whites, when they try to single out Donald Trump and say that he is racist uh, or they will even isolate it to a group, a small group of whites and say, well, the Republican Party is racist or conservatives, quote unquote, uh, are racist or older white men or older white people uh, are racist or the Klan is racist. There should be a term for that when they try to minimize and reduce the racist white people to just this small collection or even a few individuals. If we could just get rid of Paula Dean and Donald Sterling and Donald Trump, then we'd have this whole racism thing licked. Uh, that should be labeled because I have seen more and more of that. And I think that's also going to be a, a important trend uh, for the remainder of this uh, election year. But if people have ideas, thoughts, a uh, new term for what that is, because uh, that has been uh, in heavy rotation. It's, it's obviously been in use before this year, but I think it's going to be used even more as we proceed with the election uh, going down this year. Uh, with that, we'll get to the folks who called in. Again, no metaphors, and I am going <clears> to <throat> challenge myself to be more vocal in calling that out because uh, I called myself out. I think people, if you've been listening since I've been saying no metaphors on the Saturday uh, pro program, uh, I correct myself when I make an error. Uh, when I use a metaphor, stop, go back, substitute that out, and speak clearly. Uh, I really want to do that. Uh, and sometimes I wait until a person has piled up. They've used like three, four, five metaphors in a row. <laughs> and then I will say something if we could really... Uh, no metaphors. Uh, we are on this program supposed to be making an effort to be a bit more conscious uh, about the way that we speak about racism, white supremacy, the words that we choose. Words are very important. There was a white man, a uh, university president who was fired. He lost his job this week because of a metaphor. He was talking about the freshman students and he said, uh, the problem is that you think of them as little bunnies. And sometimes you have to drown the bunnies. You get your Glock and you put the gun to the bunny's head and you pull the trigger. I mean, there was more to it. But I mean, this was a core element of why he lost his job was this metaphor. And white people, they were not going to accept that sort of language uh, from this white man as a president. So, I mean, we should really be careful uh, about the words that we're using. And I am going to challenge myself to speak up more. It doesn't mean that you can't talk, but it just means that, you know, hey. It is very important, uh, as I've said consistently, frequently people use metaphors. They are comparing things that are not equivalent. Uh, sometimes the metaphors are just very confusing. I would even say sometimes I'll take a metaphor that I use frequently. This is the only uh, broadcast where I say no metaphors. A metaphor I use frequently when I say the Voltron effect. Even for a metaphor like that where it does seem that you know a lot of people grasp what I'm saying and have begun using that themselves, that metaphor becomes very impotent. If people don't know what Voltron is, and that's another thing, sometimes the things that are being compared, the metaphor is only as powerful to the degree that people can relate to what you're saying. And sometimes people are using metaphors where people have no idea uh, what you're talking about. Like if I was in South Africa talking to someone, I don't know that saying the Voltron effect would have the same impact because I'm sure a lot of people there probably wouldn't know uh, what I'm talking about, even if I was talking to a 10 year old. I suspect they probably don't know what Voltron is. So another thing to keep in mind, just another reason why. Be careful, be cautious, be alert, be mindful uh, of how we're speaking about racism, white supremacy, and specifically for the Saturday compensatory call-in. No metaphors. And again, I am going to challenge myself to speak up more. Uh, a lot of times I just, I don't like, uh, you know, trying to putting people on the spot, making it seem like I'm trying to call folks out and that sort of thing. It's just very important. So in a gentle way, I am going to... Uh, 
make an effort to speak up more, let folks know that no metaphors for this broadcast. If you could take five minutes uh, to share whatever comments, thoughts that you have, that would be great. Uh, I do want to make sure we give time for everyone to comment and give their uh, thoughts observations uh, for the week that would be great be mindful that other folks also uh, would like to participate Uh, if you could watch the background noise that would be grand Uh, and if you could just share one time and then allow everyone else to speak that would be great we should have time for other folks to get you know if you have an additional comment question observation that you want to get in we should have time for that as well everyone who dialed in with a hand well at least the first set of people who dialed in with a hand up your line should be open Uh, feel free to participate can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, I had a few um, things I wanted to point out. First, um, the practice you just talked about, uh, where they try to say it's old white people or, you know, when the old people die out of Paula Dean, I just use the simple word of deception, you know, implicit deception maybe or, or cognitive deception because they know that that's a lie and you know, they're practicing deception. Um, I had a observation that happened to me actually tonight. It was two back to back and it was pretty compelling. Um, I was went went to the supermarket and um, I was going to get some 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 things um, in particular um, and I saw a white lady and um, you know I'm crossing the street. I cross right to her. And her child is having a temper tantrum. Um, he's about two, maybe three. He's laying on the ground. She's carrying a baby in her hand. And, I mean, I just sat back and observed to all the black people running to the rescue, offering to buy the kid what he wanted. Because, um, obviously, he was crying because he wouldn't get by himself something he wanted from the store, giving advice on parenting. And um, just looked around. They all had this look of empathy on their face. And... Uh, when I see black kids out in public having a tantrum, I don't see, I see the look of disgust on the white people's face, you know, when they walk past that, they don't have that look of empathy. They're usually not trying to offer the help. Um, they, they're, um, they look mortified. So I just was like, wow. Um, so I go to the supermarket and, um, in particular, I carry some water and some laundry detergent, a few other things, um, some juice and things. So I had to walk to my house, or my apartment, which is three blocks from the supermarket. And then I had to turn, you know, and halfway down my street is a parking garage. Now, like I said, you know, I'm struggling with water, three gallons of water, big, heavy um, detergent, the biggest size, and some other things. And um, I observe as I'm approaching this um, parking garage, a white lady, um, you know, pulled into the garage and it's half, the car is halfway covering the sidewalk so I'm already navigating I'm gonna have to you know cut the sidewalk here to be able to enter the car I mean to to, you know get down the street and um she pulls out one of those big rubber made containers from the back of her car and um it was obviously heavy and she had like um some bags and some blankets on top of it and just as she lifted it up it started to fall out her hand the white attendant, um, who I've lived around on this block for about 15 years, has never spoken to me. He's a non-English-speaking white person. Um, you could tell English is a second language, probably from Eastern Europe. He wants to help her, and um, he grabs it. And, um, you know, they're both kind of trying to, you know, navigate this big container. And now just as I'm getting close, he puts himself in a position where he's blocking me. 
And he says, um, listen, without asking, just like a command, um, drop your bags. Um, I'll watch your groceries and go help her to her house with this container. Now, she lives in, I, I've seen her sister. She lives in the apartment building next to Mars, which happens to be a school, public school, that they converted into million-dollar apartments. And, um, you know, so, you know, I, I didn't have, my hands was hurting. I was kicking myself in the leg. In the in the back, I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry, Gus. So I was I was angry at myself for not listening to my wife and um, not taking the shopping cart and already planning her telling me I told you to take the shopping cart when I got back to the apartment. So I didn't have time to get in the question when he asked you. So I just told him to get the blink out my way. He did, you know. But just the, the audacity of these people, like that's my job. Um, yeah, I think um, back to the clips. I'll try to be real quick. Hillary is um, using black people, I think, of course, to get the vote. Um, and honestly, just thinking of how black people look at Bernie, you know, he talks good talk. But honestly, I hate the fact that the media is not pointing out the fact that he's a Jew. I think that's being done intentionally. And, um, you know, it's just funny to me, a Jew offering to give you stuff for free. It's just like, wow, you know, the irony in that. Um, um, and he's um you know, swindling millions of dollars from college kids and senior citizens to pay for his campaign, if you ask me. Also, um, on the other front, um, I think um, my main man, Donald Trump, is about to get cheated by the so-called establishment. I mean, I don't remember this word coming up before. They used to be called the status quo, but I guess they're called the establishment now. And, um, you know, I, I see the Koch brothers is now against him. Um, planning a state, well, they already raised $75 million to go against them, and all of a sudden Romney pops up. So it's just real strange what's going on over there. Um, I don't think immigration is over age immigrants, rather, deserve to go to school with normal age kids. Um, I just don't think that, I mean, you came over here, you're already almost an adult. You know, got to do what we do when we go to other places. You got to learn the language, you fit in somehow. I mean, it's you're a little too old, I think. Um, and that's dangerous. A 19, 20-year-old in class with my in the school with my 14 or 15-year-old, I don't like that at all. Uh, um, lead issue. I wonder if the lead issue in each individual city coincides with the white flight. I hate to use that metaphor, but I don't know another one for it. Uh, when white people leave, um, I wonder if that was a, you know, I look at... Um, gentrification i was in on um, jersey city and i see they're being gentrified but in the all-black area but not by whites by latinos and um you know i just think uh my cousin was telling me about when they moved on the block that i grew up on which was always a drug infested all-black block when they first moved there it was all white people and i wonder if they left because of you know after that the schools i remember going to school and it got shut down because they had to remove the lead and the asbestos and you know, it was a lot of payments that went out to people who lived in public housing and things at that time. So I wonder if those two things coincided. And lastly, um, question to the listeners and to you, Gus, because one of the clips you play, um, should black under the system of white supremacy be labeled as a disability? Um, that's my question. Thank you. Interesting. I will ponder on that as we roll. Uh, other folks that we have uh, not heard from, feel free to uh, participate. Ow.
uh, other folks who have a hand up that we have uh, not heard from? Uh, yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, oh, hold on. Yes, uh, just wanted to comment on uh, what I've been observing about uh, Mrs. Hillary Clinton. Uh, I kind of like just brief, recently started studying this white supremacist suspect. And right now, my analysis is, is how cunning uh, she is, how calculated, how very well script on understanding non-white black people to be able to use that knowledge against us and to benefit herself and the system of racism and white supremacy. Uh, yeah, for some reason, reminds, she reminds me of the character on Bone with the Wind, uh, Miss Scarlet, I believe her name was. Uh, very, very, very scripted on, on, on the some of the behaviors that, that we have uh, on, a, on a daily basis to whereas, and I noticed the confrontation that she had with the uh, non-white black female and how she's very, very, uh, I can't think of the right word right now to use, but it's, it's something that's not constructive. And the way that she kind of like, you know, really checked the, the young lady, uh, so to speak, uh, just brushed her off and 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 use these condescending terms, uh, deary or something like that, dear, uh, you know that sort of thing. And uh, uh, and I think in, in our confusion, a lot of us still flock towards her because in our state of desperation, we would settle for someone who, well, she's not the best thing to do, but nevertheless, uh, she's better than nothing. Is <laughs> what I constantly hear, uh, that sort of thing. But this, this is an observation of, of her uh, uh, as far as her unique uh, means of, uh, of uh, practicing racism and white supremacy. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's stunning. It's actually a stunning. Uh, uh, I'm not surprised, you know, as far as a white person, but just uniquely on the, just how I just noticed her recently by studying her and how, how cunning she really is. Uh, but uh, that, that's all I have to say right now. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Other folks have observations. If we have not heard from you, feel free to participate. Uh, hello. Yes, sir. Hey, I'll, I'll be pretty brief. Uh, one, the, uh, the clip with Mr. Marr saying why he don't understand white people voting for Hillary after all. She's just a white woman with a big, oh, that's why. There's also another thing about him. 
he tends to make racist jokes about black males and white females in a sexual manner. Now, I'm only mentioning this because this is, this is the person who says he loves black women. Remember this. And you can go through its history. It's, it's been done several times. Now, also, the uh, gentrification speech, I thought the interviewer was, was being deceptive and not honest and practicing racism because he just He just described gentrification as white people moving in. He didn't say black people were being kicked out, black people being forced out. And a lot of the cases, black people having their property taken through racism. Now, he just dismissed it as white people moving in. No, that's not gentrification is like people moving in. It's harm to black people. That's the most important part of gentrification. And uh, as for that white cop, the one charged with murder, being offered another job, you know, I'm it's no surprise. I thought about I thought about Oscar Pistorius, even though he's not a law enforcement officer. He is a white guy being told, you know, just before he's being sentenced, you can go back once you get out of prison to resume your athletic career. I thought about the spy Jonathan Pollard who was released from prison late last year. Here's a man who committed treason against this country, admittedly so, and after doing 30 years in prison, he was told there's a job waiting for him. A admitted traitor. An imprisoned traitor. There's a job waiting for him. Uh, that's that's all I have to say for now. Like I said, I just wanted to be brief. Appreciate that, M1. Other listeners uh, that we have not heard from yet, if you all had uh, questions, observations, uh, thoughts you wanted to share, uh, if your line should be open, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, Greetings to you, Gus, and to all the callers. Um, Yeah, I'll try and make it brief as well. I wanted to speak to, I believe it was a firefighter in Florida. He talked about Hillary Clinton and her cunning. And um, it just brought to mind, um, Scotty Reed had an episode in which he discussed the release of her emails and um, the fact that in the emails basically delineated uh, her facilitating the assassination of Muammar Gaddafi. And in the emails, it also indicated why. 
which even though um, Muammar Gaddafi had no real love for black people, um, a great documentary on that is The Secret Life of Muammar Gaddafi, for those who don't know the, the full story. But he did, he was able to do things that I think no other leader on the African continent was able to do. Um, what he was uh, in the process of doing was facilitating uh, the unification of the continent, all of the countries of, of the continent, under one dollar that would be backed by the resources of Africa, which, of course, we all know that Africa is the richest continent on the planet. So uh, basically, if he was able to complete that mission, uh, the African dollar would have supplanted the euro, the U.S. dollar would have been worth nothing simply because their systems are more based on credit versus the actual resources of the African continent being utilized to back their dollar. And that was uh, specifically outlined in her emails. So I think a lot of us don't realize that uh, Africa might have been in a completely different place as far as uh, economically speaking and would have been making strides that uh, we haven't seen in well over 500 years um, if he was able to facilitate that aspect of what he was doing. Um, and it really just gives me pause for thought because he discussed the fact that she was a psychopath. And to me, like her, her mannerisms, her behavior is really just, a, she's a psychopathic racist white supremacist. And I believe a lot of white, a lot of black people don't fully understand the ramifications of what having her in office would, 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 would be. And I think, you know, I, I don't like Donald Trump like anyone else, but I would take him over her any day simply because I believe uh, Donald Trump would be the candidate that, that might push black people in the direction of actually trying to do something about the system of white supremacy because he speaks to white psychopathology. Um, also, the clip that you played in reference to the campaign office shooting, uh, the black female that they interviewed said that the shooting was ignorance. And I just find that a lot of us really don't understand the system of racism, white supremacy, what it means to be white, and the language that we have been given, because language is really a tool, a tool in, to be able to uh, express yourself in the most precise way so that ideas can be conveyed to other people who speak the same language as you or who can understand that language. And I just believe that because this system is so confusing, it has given us the most inadequate language to describe this system. And for her to say that a shooting is ignorance, and ignorance means to not know something, just makes no sense to me. Um, and I just wish she would have used the term, it was racism, white supremacy, and he was basically trying to kill someone who was black by shooting at that building. And um, it was just saddening to me because she just, in, in her answer, really further would have confused other black people who probably did not have the accurate language to describe incidences that have happened to them as well. Um, also, the clip you played about gentrification in, in Brooklyn and Fort Greene, um, funny because I, I grew up in Park Slope and Prospect Heights, and I also grew up in Fort Greene. And um, there's a documentary called Brooklyn Boheme uh, done by Stanley Nelson, and he's also a Fort Greene resident. And they kind of discuss how Fort Greene started the gentrification process, which actually, with, ironically enough, started with Spike Lee uh, selling his brownstone. He was the first person to sell a brownstone that cost that cost or made him over a million dollars. And it was after that that uh, it looks like the property value basically went up, and white people started to become more attracted to that area because in the 80s and 90s, when I was growing up, there were no white faces at all in Fort Greene, and it was the, one of the most notorious. Um, murder, murder capitals in the city of New York at that time. And um, today, when I go back today, it's a completely different place. And um, I was wondering what Thomas Smith said as well, if uh, the lead poisoning situation coincides with the time frame in which white flight, quote unquote, 
played it. Like said, there's no other uh, way to say it because Spike Lee discussed the fact in the documentary that he was the first, his family was the first black family to move to Fort Greene. And this was, I believe, in the early 70s or the late 60s. And he said when he moved there, there were nothing but white people. And he said uh, within about a year to two years, the second black family moved there. And after that, he said white flight took place, and that's when they left. And, um, and that's when Fort Greene became the Fort Greene that I knew it to be, which was a black, highly black and Latino area. Um, so it's just interesting as far as that's concerned with gentrification. And um, the whole area, as far as that area, because um, my junior high school, you played a clip a, month, a couple months ago about my junior high school, which they're now planning to move from, uh, from the, the, uh, what I would call the Fort Greene areas, like the Farside, Farragut Projects area, to now Dumbo, which is a white area. And they're also uh, bringing white students to this school. And the black residents are trying to fight to uh, keep, what Satellite West Junior High School, a black school uh, for black kids because they've done very well and have had quite a bit of success with the black student body in, in that area. And that's now shifting. Um, also, I thought about the uh, Utica School District um, and their systematic uh, non lack of education for uh, immigrants. And I thought about what Thomas in New York said, yes, I wouldn't feel comfortable to have like a 14-year-old or 15-year-old child in school with a 19, 20, 21-year-old person. Um, I know in New York they used to have night school for adults, uh, for people who were of that age range. And I was thinking, well, why don't they just have a night school scenario where these people can go to school at night, get their, get their education as far as getting their high school diploma, and then in the daytime they'll have their job or you know something of that nature to sustain themselves while they're going to school at night because that's the way, the way that I've always seen it done um, in New York City, growing up in New York City. Um, but to me, it just kind of speaks to the fact that a lot of these people who move to this country, um, they get a lot of horrible information about, about black people due to the images that we um, perpetuate about ourselves and that the news perpetuates worldwide about black people. And they don't understand that there's a history to the fact that they're not being educated. And that history started with black people um, not being allowed an education in this country. Um, so I think there's a lot of connections that could be made to potentially help uh, non-white people come together as far as fighting the system of racism, white supremacy, especially under circumstances like that. And um, I think that's it. Oh, yeah. Thank you for taking my call. That's it. <laughs> thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, just quickly before we get to some of the other folks who have a hand up uh, with that school age issue, um, I think that that is common i know uh when i was in school that they they had an age limit i know it varies uh depending on which state you happen to be in and i suspect even which county or what have you you happen to be in a parish if we're in louisiana uh but it could be 19 it could be 20 it could be 21 uh, in terms of the age uh where you can still be in uh public school uh and till you graduate because uh, i know when i was there there were students they weren't quote-unquote refugees but they were there, they were 19, they were 20, and they were still there trying to finish their education. So I think it's uh, probably not that uncommon uh, to have students that are over 18 that are still uh, in public school. I know we had, I was in classes uh, with students. I remember uh, when I was uh, a freshman where I was in class uh, with students who were over 18. Uh, it's it's probably not as uncommon as, as people would think, I suspect. Um, other folks who uh, have a hand up? We haven't uh, heard from you. Feel free. Hey, Gus, but those kids wasn't there to learn English. You know, they was there to learn like everyone else. These kids are there starting way behind to learn English. Like, you can't learn English at 19. 
Well, that that certainly a valid point. Um, I don't know if all of these quote unquote refugees, I don't know if they all uh, lack English skills uh, because they had different folks. I think the first person they started with, I think she was from Thailand. She was clearly not. I saw the image. She was a non-white person. But some of the other students, they were uh, they were. They look like just black people uh, from wherever they, you know, happen to be coming from, whatever part of the world. Uh, I don't know if they were all uh, had the same type of uh, language deficiencies. But uh, even with that, I would think that they could get, you know, they have English uh, as a second language. They have those type of classes that they could uh, set up and, you know, get people uh, get people established so that they can function and and get what they need in terms of coursework. I've I've seen where white people brag about having language courses where they can. uh, Yeah, because they actually that can get you proficient in a short period of time. I've seen where white people brag about having that sort of thing. I was going to say, cause they were saying that the kid, that the, uh, the adults wanted to actually go to high school, but right. they would only allow them to go to English classes. So, um, and then you're, I was going to say too, you're absolutely right about the age limit with, um, with, uh, okay. Hello? I was going to say you were right about the age limit with um, high schools because when I was in school, I believe the age limit was 22 in New York City. So um, after that, they would basically kick you out and you would have to go to night school with adults. Um, and the the difference for me was that there were very few people that that were left back that were in school past the age of um, 18, 19. You might have had a 19-year-old at the most, but um, and I think there was only one person I remember that was like 21 that was still in school, and he was like the laughing stock of the school at that point, sadly. But um, essentially, that, you're absolutely right in different states. Other folks uh, who had a hand up, uh, did you all have comments you wanted to get in? Um, good evening, everyone. It's Karma. Um, just as a little background, we know that I got rid of my regular corporate job and I have my own little business that brings in a couple of pennies. And, uh, and my main thing that I do all the time is try to figure out how racism, white supremacy is working just so that I can fix that the tiny little place where I live. But that's my goal. It, it's real, there's not much to it. Just trying to learn about it. Been doing it a couple of years. Just want to fix that. So, um, Katie High School. Uh, I think I mentioned Katie High School before. It's a public school. On every sign when they sell a house, wow, you can have a home in Katie ISD, Independent School District. And uh, it's a source of great pride and white people move from all over the Houston area and move to Katy independent school district because they make sure they keep that black ratio under 5%. And they do that because every time they get like 6%, they build a school just for them. And they, and they, just, they have an amazing amount of money. So that's, that was Katy high school where you were talking about on the radio that uh, the, the, the black child was removed from school because the other kids were bullying her. So, but uh, they're they're notorious. Secondly, I think that um, that gentleman on the on the the lead thing when he was saying, "Oh, these other places, you unions and they uh, used copper wire and I mean copper in the pipes instead of lead." He's lying. The worst lead lead thing I have seen in the United States of America, and I've been around this country a bit, is in New York. It was phenomenal. The lead contamination. by the black children in New York was phenomenal. I just, I felt like they were all looking at me to get a handle on it. 
And secondly, your uh, thing about not using metaphors and Voltron, I have to tell you that as of this moment, I still have never seen a Voltron. I've never heard of Voltron. I, I kind of think that Voltron may be sort of like Transformers, given what you say in the context, but I will surely look up and find out what a Voltron is as I hang up with you today. Next, um, I don't know, maybe this is workplace racism, but, uh, oh, Chef Steve, uh, not Chef, Chief Stevens, the, yeah, she, I, I told her not even long ago, I said, you were doing such a good job. The only time I even feel safe is, you know, when I'm in her jurisdiction. She, she is a great chief of police, and she said, ah, now you're going to be upset because I'm going to go run for sheriff. Um, and I'm like, oh, that's pitiful. But she's a good chief of police. She puts on that hick accent and, and uh, says things like, oh, you know, ignorance, but the woman is smart, but she's trying to get elected sheriff. So, you know, that's a big deal. Um, I worked for the elections. And that was interesting because two two older white women showed up. Let me see. Let me give myself one more minute. Two older white women showed up in my area that had never been there before, and it was on. The first thing they tried to do was separate me from the Latino woman that I had hired to work the polls with me. They walked in and they said, oh, so she's, uh, you know, presiding. Wow, this is like it used to be. Things sure have changed. It's kind of heartbreaking the way things have gone. Thank God you're here, little Latino child. You're brilliant. You're smart. There's some hope for us yet. And um, they uh, went into lecturing me because a white woman asked for a you know, Democratic ballot, and we gave it to her. And then she says, no, no, I want a Republican ballot. And I said, yes, but you asked for a Democratic ballot. She says, how dare you look at her? How dare you call your job is just to do what she asks you to do. Even if she made a mistake, you should never correct her. I mean, they were just crazy. And, well, not crazy. They were racist. <laughs> and then, um, so while they're doing all this stuff to cause disharmony, in comes a, a gentleman who who has a white spouse with her white child and his mulatto child. Well, not mulatto child. His 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 half black child and and the first thing these two old biddies do is jump up and go oh, oh my god what beautiful children these are beautiful children because black children have been in there earlier and they didn't say anything about those children they said what beautiful children i mean it was just i said oh my goodness thank goodness i don't have to work with these people every day they're horrendous and then at the end even though i'm senior and president these little old ladies that i have never seen before says what are you doing with that what are you doing with that judge's controller booth? What are you doing with those votes? I said, I'm going to take them to the courthouse. In your car? And I'm like, yeah, we're in the middle of nowhere. I just don't think that's right. I don't think that's right. I have a truck. It's bigger. We can get everything in my car. I'm going, no, I've done this before. It fits in my car comfortably. No, we, we're just not going to be able to do it. Put it in my truck, and uh, I'll drive it to the courthouse. And I said, well, it's my responsibility to do that. Saying, no, 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 no. Let me drive it in my truck. I said, I'll tell you what. We'll put it in your truck, and I'll follow you there. So she goes out to her truck, and she goes, I don't really know where I am. I can't drive the back roads at night. Can you lead me there? I mean, this woman insisted on taking the ballots to the courthouse. It simply was not worth me calling the FBI, the feds, and the state. I just, I just, I just couldn't believe how awful they were. Well, thanks for listening, and um, 
I'm not going to have anybody like that in that polling place ever again. It's not happening under any circumstances. No. So that's what I learned. Fascinating observations. Fascinating. That I think you are the first person who said that they uh, didn't understand or, or did not recognize Voltron, which not exactly uh, what I was saying uh, earlier about uh, metaphors. Um, before I get to the next caller, uh, Karma reminded me the Albany student situation. That was something uh, that I had said last week that I wanted to keep up with as that trial uh, evolves. That's the situation in Albany, New York, where these were uh, three black female students and they were on a bus. This was in February. They were on a bus. It was late. It was after midnight. Uh, they were on a public bus and they alleged that they had been uh, assaulted verbally and physically uh, accosted by white passengers. And within, I think, about two weeks, they, the enforcement officials uh, said that these young ladies had fabricated these charges. Uh, the video camera from the bus and video from, uh, I guess, different passengers who had their cell phones out uh, showed that no one physically assaulted these uh, young black students uh, and that they were the aggressors, uh, similar to the Klan situation, a clip that we played on that, uh, and that they were charged last week. Uh, I just forgot to include that clip. I had it and don't know how, but I just forgot to include it. But uh, they were they had their first court date uh, this week. White female judge in the case, their attorney, the attorney for one of the young uh, black females asked for the charges to be dismissed. And the judge said that uh, absolutely not. These charges are serious, uh, that this this case has caused a great deal of harm to our community and we need healing. Uh, so we need this process to come uh, to a resolution. We owe that to the community. So I absolutely will not dismiss these charges. And in fact, they added charges. Uh, that's the latest update that uh, it went from uh, several. Uh, as I said, it's three uh, black female students. Uh, they were facing I think the charges were assault and uh, false falsification of a report. Uh, they added additional uh, assault charges because other white students, other white passengers on the bus stepped forward to say that they also had been abused. Uh, you know, I got hit in the face or I sustained this injury. Uh, and so they added additional charges uh, this week. But I definitely plan on uh, keeping up with that case. And uh, I know we have folks that are in the New York area. I would encourage you all to keep up uh, with that incident uh, as well. Uh, also, really quick, the uh, the other student uh, incident, uh, not the one uh, that Karma mentioned, but the other school incident where they were talking about, uh, I think, it, well, I don't think I, the video, it looked like a white woman who had these two non-white children who had apparently one white parent, one non-white parent. And they were talking about how they were being bullied uh, and called nigger. And I think one of the students had their arm broken purposely. Uh, she said that these white students were calling her non-white children bad chocolate I thought that was uh, Dr. Welsing would have had a big smile and I thought that was important because for young racists to have it, and I mean these were these were not even high school students we're talking like 12 uh, 13 11 in that range uh, I guess that would be middle school maybe um, for them to have that sort of language that way of talking about a non-white person that shows quite a, in my view, quite a sophisticated understanding of white supremacy, uh, for that's the way that they are going about practicing racism against these very young 
uh, non-white children, but I thought that was a very important segment as well. Uh, other folks that uh, we have not heard from, uh, lines should be open if you have commentary that you want to get in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. How's it going, everyone? How's it going, guys? Tanner here from Texas. Uh, I just to share something very brief. Um, I actually noticed something today. Uh, in the past, I noticed that uh, some of my relatives and I, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't, we didn't have parents that like taught us about racism or anything like that. But as we were getting older, you know, you, you see a lot of images on TV especially when you watch, like, the news and stuff. Like, certain stations, they'll, uh, like, local local town stations or whatever, they'll they'll play um, news information. They'll keep playing it over and over again. And every time you see it, it's always, like, a Hispanic or a black person that committed a crime. And um, I don't want to go off, go, go off, go off live uh, too much, but I just want to mention something quick. They'll, uh, they'll play that. And, I mean, if you look on Instagram and Facebook and you see all the crimes that, you know, that the, the white people commit is like they couldn't even get some of those, you know, some of that information to put it on, on T, you know, on the news station. But, but yeah, so, you know, growing up, I've seen that a lot. And I always thought that, man, um, I used to talk to my brothers, like, man, maybe if we just dress different and, and you know, dress decent and, um, and, and talk, um, you know, and, and talk, talk like we're decent people, maybe we'll be liked and we won't be seen as, as niggas or as, as gangsters or hoodlums. So my relatives and I, some of my relatives and I that were around the same age as myself, we used to do that, and we used to go around and and see white people, and we'd be like, "Hey, how's it going, sir? How's everything?" And they would still give us the cold shoulder and give us dirty looks, and and I was like, "What's going on? We're we're dressed decent, and we're, we're speaking very like we're very very well spoken. What's going on? We changed, like we're not like we used to be. We're still getting the same treatment." So you know, I realized that today, talking to. Uh, to my partner, and uh, it's kind of embarrassed because it's like, now that I'm conscious about certain things, it's like I can't believe that I was like that, like trying to suck up and not knowing that that that's not what it is. It's not about how you dress or how you talk. Like, even if you're in a suit, they still see you, see you the same way. Um, and it's sad enough that even when you have to go to the grocery store or a 7-Eleven, as a black person, you got to wear a three-piece suit just so that they won't even think you're, you're stealing at least at least two items. If you if you if you dress regular with sweatpants and they think you're stealing ten items, but that just goes to show that no matter what how you dress, they always think you're stealing something. But yeah, just realize that it realize that today and uh it was uh, very shameful. Very shameful. Another thing is that, you know, going to work and everything like that is um it's a battle every day and every time you come home you feel like a coward because you see certain things happening and you can't say you have to watch what you say because when you say something, it'll be. Uh, I'm I'm sorry because it's stressful. It's, it's I mean, you know, it's not a fun thing to talk about. Because um, even though I, you know, I'm talking to you guys about it, it's I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the pain and the sorrow from it. Um, it's very stressful going to work and having to deal with certain things. You have to watch your mouth and you actually have to hold your tongue. It's just it's stressful. Um, one more thing I wanted to add was that uh. Back when I was younger, um, I used to live in the neighborhood, and we used to hang out with these um, 
you know, we didn't see race or anything like that. We, 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 not even about not seeing race. We just didn't know about racism, white supremacy. And, you know, we were colorblind and, and all of that. I don't know if that's the right term to use as a black person because, you know, we're not the ones that orchestrate all of that. But anyway, I hope you guys get what I'm saying. So we used to hang out with, you know, a bunch of white kids in the neighborhood. Everything was cool. And uh, there was one time, a lot of things happened, but there was one time where, well, we, we knew that this white kid we were hanging out with, he was like part of, like his brother was part of like a skinhead group or something like that. And we used to hang out with him. And one time he got mad at us, so it was like an all-out war in the neighborhood. So all the black kids would hang out with each other, and all the white kids separated. So there was one time late, late at night, um, we were down the block, and maybe about like four blocks down away from us, we saw a car in the middle of the road, and the lights were off. And we saw a whole bunch of people walk in on each side of the car, and they were coming down. The car was riding up slow, too, but it was far. Then when it got close enough, the lights turned on and started speeding toward us. And you saw a whole bunch of white skinhead kids running toward us. So, you know, we were, we were like maybe 12, 13. So we all ran and went into the bushes all together. And by the time they came down the block, we were nowhere to be found. We were in the bushes looking at them. And they couldn't find us. So you saw these skinhead kids along with some of the other white kids that we used to hang out with. And that one white kid that had the brother in the skinhead, I guess he was a leader of this, and they were walking down looking for us, and they had bats and, like, weapons in their hands and stuff like that. It was a very, very scary moment, but um, that's one of my moments of uh, facing racism and white supremacy. I just wanted to, you know, just, you know, speak the word to the people. Oh, one more thing. If you guys are looking for uh, a black doctor, African doctor, say African, I mean all black people, all melanoid people, there's a website called Zoc, Doc, Z-O-C-D-O-C. You can just uh, type in what kind of doctor you want, and you can, you know, check it out. Again, I mentioned that because black doctors are uh, underrepresented. They're not represented that much. And it's really hard to find some, especially on the website. And a lot of people don't like seeing them. Um, so, you know, if you want to promote that to, uh, you know, get some clientele for your, for the community, that's a good way to, to do that. And uh, I mute my line. Great. What is, what is that address again for folks that are listening? Oh, Zach Doc. You can just go on Google, type in Z, Z as in zebra, O, C as in cat, D as in dog, O, C as in cat. Great. So on Google, just type it in and, you know, you can search the kind of doctor you want within the area by a zip code or language. Great. Definitely appreciate that information, sir. Um, No problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, colorblind, that is a metaphor. Hold your tongue. That's a metaphor, too. Uh, just making sure I'm challenging myself to call those out. Uh, other folks who had a hand up uh, who wanted to make sure they get a comment in before we transition to workplace racism? Hello, can I be here? Uh, uh, I guess we'll do Puff first. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, greetings, everybody. This is Puff. Um, just want to make two comments real quick. Um, looks like we're going to have to put Jackson on the list of lead also because our mayor had a press con. I live in Jackson, Mississippi now. And Chukwe so, Lumumba. um, right. He's passed away and, you know, we basically have nobody to, uh, fight for our rights. Uh, if you don't know who Chukwe Lumumba is, um, Chuck Way Lumumba 
was a lawyer. He he got I was at a rally one time and uh, they were about to bring Chuck Wayne Mover to the stage. Attorney Chuck Wayne Mover to the stage and then and then they said, Well, uh this person, uh O J called him first, they said. And Chuck Way Lumumba was the one that told him to call Johnny Cochran. And so that's that's who Chuck Way Lumumba is. You can also see him on the Tupac uh on the Tupac documentaries, like a couple of them, uh defending Tupac. But anyway, um yeah, put Jackson on the list of, you know, um quote unquote well, I'm not gonna use metaphors, uh Black cities, uh, Jackson, Mississippi is eighty percent black, and so um, they and it's but it's nowhere near the levels of you know Flint, Michigan. Uh, I think on the press conference that I may have had last week, um, and of course you know here we go with the racism. Uh, the state which conducted the lead studies, the Department of Health conducted. Like it was like a hundred homes or something like that, a sample of a hundred homes, and the lead levels they didn't report them until eight or nine months later. They knew about the lead levels, but they didn't report them to the city until January, and so that's like eight or nine months later, so they sat on you know information that could have been pertinent to which is racist. Okay, so, yeah, just add Jackson to the list also of um, places with uh, lower levels, but they're nowhere near like Flint. I think uh, the highest, the highest uh, lead levels, the lady over the water department says is like a two. And so they're they're coming from homes, just like uh, the people earlier in the broadcast were saying, you know, people have lead pipes in homes, you know, and, and I think on your in your clips they said they didn't stop using them until the 80s. And so people have lead pipes in, in their homes. I think uh, the highest lead level, she says, is two. But compared to Flint, Michigan, I think the lead levels were 30,000 per billion, parts per billion or something like that. But uh, again, with the with the lead, I, I have to really, really, really do some research into lead levels, and that's just something I just found out about, really. And so I have to like really, really research uh, lead and you know that type of thing. And, and this is all the home that I'm living in. I live in my parents' home, and uh, it was built in 1966. So. I'm gonna have to really, really do some research, you know, on that or whatever. But the second thing I wanted to talk about was um, Hillary Clinton. Uh, they have pretty much, I think, the white supremacists are gonna give it to Hillary Clinton, the, the race for the presidency, because you know, I think uh, what's happened is is a white strategy uh, divide, quote unquote, and conquer. But you know. In reality, they're all together. Because uh, that was brought out at the first Republican debate where they said that Hillary Clinton, uh, Trump has given money to Hillary Clinton's campaign, to Bill Clinton's campaign. And all, and they've given, he's one of her campaign donors. And that's I believe that's true also. 
And so um, you notice that all the stuff they're talking about for the last year or two, they've been talking about women, like women's rights, and they don't earn as much as a man and this and that. It's just been women, women. It's like another feminist wave. And so they, they are preparing for her to uh, come into power over there. I just wanted to make those comments, and that's all I wanted to say. Uh, our female caller in Ohio, were you going to comment? Uh, yes. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, look, um, guys, I, I want to, I've mentioned this before when I have called in the cows, and I'm going to do it again. I'm going to talk about the importance of voting. And though I think, uh, you know, that some people feel uh, discouraged, understandably so. I think it's a tool, and so it's a tool that we black people need. Uh, I find it interesting that the narrative, that when black people, first the narrative was that we didn't, uh, that we shouldn't vote, that we were not intelligent enough to vote. And as soon as we did get the voting, get the right to vote, um, then the narrative became, uh, it doesn't do any good to vote. And uh, one of the, you know, and, and that kind of narrative uh, has helped the right wing. Um, if you look at the, um, when um, Malcolm was killed in February of 1965, uh, later on that year, we got the Voting Rights Act in August of 1965, then um, going on up to the first election uh, after the Voting Rights Act, we lose King. And how do we show our gratitude for these people laying down their lives? We don't vote in 68, and Nixon wins. And this is how the right wing has solidified its power in America. It's not through, it's through low voter, voter turnout. This is what, they, what happened with Carter. And when Reagan got in, Reagan, if black people would have voted during that election, Reagan would have never got in. And that's the truth. But again, you have progressives. We African-Americans cannot listen to progressives. White progressives will be all right, even under Donald Trump. But black people will not. We cannot afford to, um, to not vote. If you have people who you may not think it affects you, but if you have people who are on Social Security, family on Social Security, that's receiving, I don't care what the pittance is, if they are receiving that those benefits, you need to vote. When you don't vote, you can't sit on a jury. You have no right to complain about the police because you won't even go and vote so you can even sit on a jury. Uh, as I've told, uh, said to the cows when I first start to call in. I spent 11 years on a job where, where I worked for a bank and had to sit in court day after day, day after day after day. And I watched them select juries. I watched black people going to jail, black people have white, having white probation officers, and the whole judicial system um, just truncated with white supremacy. And a great deal of it is could have been, some of it could be 
lesson if black people simply voted. And from that point on, I made it my business to make sure I voted in every election, and I made my family do it. I don't care how excruciating it was. I don't, I don't care how bad I felt. I voted. And a lot of people give, you know, I, I, I'm very sad that people have, uh, that a lot of folks have turned on Jesse Jackson, because a lot of things Jesse Jackson does, he doesn't, is not publicized. He was very much here in Ohio, where I live, trying to get the uh, when the chaos when it went down in 2000, 2004. But he was also here in 2012 after the midterms when people didn't vote, and he said, "Well, the Confederacy is back, you know, and things are going to be bad." And now you see, of course, he was absolutely right because you see what Congress was going down in Congress. And a lot of this stuff, even the thing with the water in Michigan, it's almost a million black people in Detroit alone, 700 and some thousand. And there is no sense in somebody like Snyder being in office. Yes, both are bad, but I'd rather have my hand smacked by the Democrats' hammer than smacked by the Republicans' axe. That's a pretty I mean, big metaphor, have, pretty big metaphor. Uh, uh, okay big metaphor. But that's basically all I want to say. It's just that it is very important. And if you don't participate, you can't talk. If you don't have the, if you, if you, if, just think of the people who have put their lives on, on, the, on the line for you to have that right. Vote for them. Vote for, you know, Have some respect for their deaths. You know, and, 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 and why to vote? Thanks, Gus. All right, on. Uh, lady, uh, hang tight because we are about to transition to workplace racism. Um, I wanted to, and we had one more person I was going to get before we get to workplace racism. Uh, just in the effort of accuracy, I think it's you have to be registered, not necessarily that you have to vote to get on a jury. And then even still, uh, I think white people would have a say in the selection process because there's been quite a bit of reporting about uh, deliberate exclusion uh, of black people from juries that has nothing to do with black people voting, not voting, registering, not registering. It's racism, white supremacy, and white people just excluding uh, black people that are qualified, registered, and could be on a jury, them just making sure that black people are not there. But, uh, lady, did you have a comment that you wanted to get in? Hello, um, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I, I actually did have... Um some comments in regard to, I guess it's called racial bullying now, um, that the uh, white woman was expressing in regards to, I'm assuming she was like, in regards to having children of mixed race. Um, I don't understand what racial bullying is. It's it's racism, and um, children exhibit these behaviors at a very early age, and there's almost no protection in the school systems, if any at all, um, when a child of color or a black child is experiencing that type of racism from children. I mean, my child, when she was in school, learned in kindergarten um, that she was a nigger, 
and um, I wrote numerous letters, spoke, spoke to the principal, nothing. Uh, there was no resolve. There was nothing done. And I pursued this for about six months. Um, as far as, um, you know, it's just a part of the system. You you learn who you are in the eyes of white people at a very young age. Um the refugees in high school, I know that was talked about a lot. Um, that's not only done to them with age. Um, as far as uh, a lot of black students being in what is so-called special ed, um, they will do this. Parents don't know that when your child is in special ed or in some of these other programs that they will not receive a high school diploma, even if they're quote-unquote in a high school, and a parent will try to transition their child and they will be blocked or told no because your child is of this age and um, we're not going to let your child stay in school till 21 or your child is too old. So they use that, um, white supremacists use that strategy same strategy, same tactic on black children all the time with the aging out. I think that's what it's referred to. Um, with the lead poisoning, um, it was interesting to hear someone say that it was in such a small amount. Uh, I remember uh, discussing lead with a uh, provider with my child. They did not know I was in the healthcare field. And they told me that my child would have to just eat tons and tons of lead chips. So it was this health care provider purposefully was miseducating um, black mothers on the effect of lead poisoning, how much is uh, needed to be consumed for a child to have, um, so for it to negatively impact the child's health. Um uh, one very interesting today, you know, racists were out and about. They were not as refined today. I was, uh, and it speaks to how other uh, white people say that they are ignorant. Um, yesterday, white woman looked me up and down. White couple walking down the street and said, "Flat out, eugenics has failed," and started to laugh. Um, so, I think that's interesting. Um, I will mute my line and uh, comment a little bit further during workplace racism. Thank you. For sure. And we will make our transition. Uh, people have comments that they would like to share, workplace racism. Uh, again, if you have figured out some things that work well uh, for minimizing conflict with other non-white people, uh, if you have figured out some things that successfully stop whites from terrorizing you on the job that is grand uh, we need that sort of thing uh, if it's unfortunately problems uh, that have come up uh, all of that great to share uh, and again uh, non-white people do benefit uh, from people being able to uh, comment and share what's happening on the job uh, i know sometimes the caller already mentioned i believe that was mr tanner uh, that it is not exactly uh, the most pleasant conversation sometimes it can just be downright uh, embarrassing 
uh, and painful uh, to discuss. But again, you know, we do try to uh, come up with least with some ideas, some strategies, things you can think about uh, to help solve some of these problems. Uh, and again, I also think it's very beneficial to see some of the patterns uh, and things that whites do to us on these jobs so that you will be uh, more informed so that you can already be planning for what you would do if this sort of thing happens to you. Uh, all can be very helpful. The number again is 641 715-3640 and if we have a moment at the end I will see if we can squeeze uh, Thomas in New York his uh, question in and that'll be something we can think about as we wrap Uh, but if folks have commentary workplace racism uh, feel free lines should be open maybe here yes sir Greetings, guests, and to the rest of the callers. So in my history class, we were talking about the Oscars for a short period of time on Monday. But I didn't watch it because I I just didn't want to. But um, we also talked about um, heaven and hell and how how it was devoting, I think, and um, how it relates to propaganda. And when we had the discussion on this, I said, well, we... When we're younger, we are taught the uh, visuals of heaven and hell. We're taught that heaven is up in the sky and um, it's just white and just peaceful and everybody's wearing halos and wings and God and Jesus is up there. And then we learn that hell is uh, underground and it's just fire and it's just evil and um, the devil is just a red man with a tail and a pitchfork and um, thorns on his head, and yeah, we. Um, I just thought we would get that idea from Christianity and um, Catholicism, and also said that we should just get more into other religions instead of just focusing on those two with heaven and hell. And I also, um, we also looked at this visual art called Heaven and Hell. Uh, it was from France, uh, French artist. Um, so it really was just uh, power of people trying to climb up to heaven. And then to me, it just looked like people down in the hell section were trying to pull those people down there. So in the heaven section, like I said before, everybody's just wearing white. Um, you can see a faint, faint vision of God or Jesus or somebody. But um, it's just, it just looks peaceful. And then down in hell, it's just... Um, fire and people are naked and you see demons and beasts down there and it's, it's just um i also noticed that the further further and further down you go to hell the darker you are and i thought that was just an act of racism because all the white people are in heaven and all the um darker skinned people are in hell and also related this to one of Martin Luther king jr's speeches um one of them that he played in one of our compensatory columns. And he said, if you look in a dictionary, you will see that black, if you look up black, you will see that it means evil or dark or wicked. And if you look up white, that means light, bright, and pure. Um, and that's all I want to say this year. Thank you. Great observations. Great observations. Did they have any, uh, either your 
classmates or the teacher, uh, did they have any comments when you made your observations in class? Well, not as far as mine, but I, some of the comments were similar. Some people thought it was an act of racism, too, because of the skin colors. Mm. Outstanding. That ubiquitous within the system of white supremacy always. Which, and that's why I comment consistently about watching that word fair. Uh, it's it's just, it's. Uh, I think we most of the time are not even thinking uh, about how omnipresent that is, just thinking associating black with something vile something evil something repugnant sinful uh and the exact reverse uh for whites but it is it is omnipresent glad to be having those observations from young people so that they can see those patterns early uh and be more aware of how they're speaking what they're doing the way that they're thinking uh to neutralize those concepts racist white supremacist concepts Outstanding. Uh, always grand to hear from our young caller in the Bay Area. Appreciate uh, your commentary, sir. Great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, other folks have uh, comments that they wanted to get in on workplace racism. Even that is fascinating that they even had the young students talking about the Oscars. Like, wow, that's the most important thing happening in the universe. <laughs> what happened at the Oscars? Uh, other folks have comments on uh, workplace racism. Hey, Gus, I wanted to speak to what the um, the young black male just spoke about in regards to that imagery. And it really um, reminded me of Dr. Wilson because she always talked about um, for white people, um, they they have that setup where if you're black, you're back, brown, stick around. If you're yellow, you're mellow, white, right. And as she was saying, the white people were all in heaven, which is exactly what they live in today. They, they have the best of everything. And as she was saying in the imagery, the further down in hell you went, the darker you got, which is exactly the, the hierarchy that we're in the system of white supremacy right now. So to me, it was almost like a pictographic uh, visual of how the system actually works as well, beyond the spiritual, just in actuality, how it works. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. I, I saw that language used uh, this week, and they were talking about workplace racism, no less. And in D.C., <laughs> With Dr. Wilson, but it was a they were talking about the uh, legacy of what they call segregation, white supremacy in Washington, D.C. And it was uh, a black male who had I guess he was born in D.C. So his childhood memories and everything were associated with D.C. And he said he remembered the newspaper articles in The Washington Post for jobs when he was a teenager and trying to get a job or what have you after school or during the summer. And they actually reprinted some of the uh ads the employment ads from i guess this is like the 1960s 1950s and it would say uh 14 year old white boys uh and then it would go on to give the job description and then they would have some for black people and it would be like garbage collector uh picking up refuse blah 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 and then they would go back to the nice cool jobs you could be inside wanted uh white teens blah 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 and it would have white in all caps uh and he said he vividly uh, remembers this growing up in Washington, D.C. He said explicitly, he said that it was stated in no uncertain terms, if you're black, get back. And then he went on with the uh, rest of the report, but absolutely, Dr. Welsing, Dr. Welsing. Other folks have comments? Workplace racism? Uh, caller at uh, 9315. Uh, it sounds like there uh, is a 
healthy child who is uh, expressing their frustration with something. If you have comments on workplace racism, uh, that's fine. But I had your line open just, you know, if you wanted to share, if you uh, had comments, uh, feel free. If not, I'll go ahead and meet your line just so we can preserve the quality of the broadcast. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. So I had a, um, I'm the car salesman from last, from last week. Oh, okay. I had another, um, yeah, so this is with a customer. This is, um, I had like an encounter with a customer that I thought was pretty funny. And, um, so first I want to point out how she was like, really, like she was really more humble than like usually like white people are. And she, um, like she went through the process like really easy. And then I found, I realized like the reason why she was so nice is usually this happens like when white people don't have great credit, they usually like are a lot nicer. I get like in a super fit, you know, it, it's for lack of a better word, nicer. And then, um, so when we get down and I was talking to her, I was like, so usually, uh, you know, she was like, oh, I have to leave soon. Like, so we got to make it fast or whatever. I was like, oh, like, why? Um. Like oh, like why do you have to leave? She was like, oh, I have to watch the Oscars. So I was like, well, is it really that important? Like, could we, you know, finish the deal or you know what have you? And she was like, no, I really want to see it. And then she um, she was like, you don't watch it? And I was like, no, I really don't watch television like movies that often. And then she um, oh, she said, yeah, that's good. Like um. Like basically, like oh, you know, like commending me or whatever for not really watching television. But then, like as a um, like I guess an incentive for me to watch it, she was like, oh, well, Chris Rock is hosting it, and I thought that was pretty funny. That was it. Uh, that's uh, I would I would even classify that as a tad on the uh, the tacky side. Like that's supposed to be my enticement. Uh, they've got one of you Negroes. Uh, <laughs> You should uh, you should want to tune in. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was uh, pretty funny. Mm. Wow. Oh, also, real, can I say something else real quick? Yes, sir. Okay, so we um, so I work I work on we so the way that our sales floor is set up, so we have like a, a sales team, like that are actual salesmen. Then we have a manager, like a team leader. They call him a closer, and then you know it's another manager. So our direct, um, what I've been noticing because now, like, mind you, we're like the top. We're the top. We're the top team in the. Uh, at the, we're the tops. Uh, basically, the top team on the floor right now, and um, like sometimes you uh, like they have like offices or it. So, oh, man, so there's three black people on my team, and our team is the top team. And what's been happening lately, I've noticed, is that, um, like, when we've been, like, lollygagging or something, like, they've been, like, sometimes we'll chill in the um, office and, you know, talk, you know, about whatever. Um, I've been noticing that, I guess, they've been watching us. And they actually, so yesterday, my actual direct manager um, was like, you know, like, well, we're going to have to stop uh, talking in the, um, like, you know, we're going to have to stop lollygagging or whatever. And then one of the uh, sales, like the like, the top sales managers, actually talked to us he was like yeah man like this why you guys not getting any deals or whatever like you're gonna be uh you guys talking you know you you're in the um you guys are in the office talking and you know you're not making calls or anything you're gonna uh the deals are gonna pass you guys by mind you 
we're still the top team this month so far. So that's what the, that's what, like just them terrorizing us for no reason. That is definitely uh, a pattern that I have observed uh, where uh, white people, even if you have black people that are uh, performing well by the standards that whites themselves uh, have established. Uh, and, you know, you could be doing better than everybody else that they will still come and say, oh, you're you're not doing this. You're not doing that and try to imply or insinuate that, you know, you're you're slacking, as they say, uh, on the job, particularly if it looks like, you know, you're having a good time or uh, relaxing in any way doing this and, and you're not stressed. You're not having lots of problems like it's been my experience that they really uh, just <laughs> The nature of what it means to be white, uh, the fact that if you are a black person, you're doing well, you're performing your job and you appear that you might not be having a rough time. Oh, man, we got to go after this black. We got to make some trouble for them. Even reminding me of uh, the half has never been told. We just wrapped it up where I was a black person on the plantation and we got to beat you. No, you haven't done anything wrong. Uh, you picked your quota of uh, you picked your quota of cotton uh, and everything else, but you're a nigger, so I got to beat you. That is still in effect. 2016. That's what it means to be white, uh, and I think a lot of people can attest to that, where they've been on jobs and and white people function in the same manner with them, where they got to come and find some some reason, some justification to reprimand you, even if you have done nothing wrong and are doing an exemplary job, whatever you're supposed to be doing your work duties. Oh, your your line is breaking up really bad. Your line is breaking up really bad, Thomas. Yeah, it's lacking. How could you make your support sales for? I think that played out a lot on the plantation too. Is you know, you pick five hundred barrels of cotton. Now they expect you to get six hundred. You know, you're gonna, you know, it's, it's gotta keep increasing. Absolutely, absolutely. Other uh, observations? I, oh, yes, sir. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, it sounds like the psychological whipping machine. I, I immediately thought of the half has never been told as he was saying that. I said, yep, it sounds like the whipping machine. You can't you can't bail enough cotton, no matter how. Even if you're ahead of the game, you're not ahead enough for white people. Wow. Um, very interesting. Very interesting observation. Um, I have my own workplace racism incident. I, I guess if anyone else wanted to comment, um, I'll wait till they speak. Uh, your volume is a little low. If you could speak up, please. Is that better? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, and let me know. It seems like my phone is um, going in and out. Um, so I just wanted to um, kind of go back, and I'm a home educator, so I don't I don't have to go to the plantation. But um, I really wanted to go a little bit, go a little bit, further into the statement that was made to me on Friday. I don't know if anyone has um, experienced that type of blatant remark from these racists. Um, again, with the woman looking at me and telling me and, and saying eugenics has fell to her white partner. Um, so that was like a, a really huge blow because I didn't know if she looked directly at me, but I didn't know if she was thinking of me or my children. And um and so today, Saturday, um, 
just at the market getting fruits and vegetables. Um, asked a price because there were some goats, so I asked the price, and um, I did not hear the man correctly, and this white man just went off in front of all his customers and explained how, he quote-unquote, um, all these urban people are so uneducated. The school system is selling. She needs to get a better education. So then I turned around to this gentleman and said, excuse me, I'm quite educated. I just was asking you the price of the goats. I didn't hear you. And continued to rant, no, you don't understand playing English. Um, so after him going on and insulting me, I said, well, for somebody who is uneducated, I'm educated enough not to buy anything from you. Um I mean, there were people laughing um, about him calling me uneducated for asking him the price of goats, but um, it was a lot of insults. Um, Another incident, um, out and about shopping, I asked, um, again, prices again, asked about a particular product, and the lady told me, you know, why don't you just go online and look it up? I said, okay, put the product down, Um, didn't make my purchase. But I don't know what it is with this weekend. I don't know if Donald Trump has people feeling a little bit um, more like they can openly speak rudely to black people. But um, it was just very interesting that I was called pretty much stupid and that uh, it was stated to me that eugenics had failed. so I don't know what what's going on this weekend. Um, and again, I just like would like to know: Have anyone else had statements such as eugenics has failed, or just I don't know, just weird statements like that from white people? Has anyone experienced that? Where does she live again? Where do you live again? So I'm in New York, Uh (laughs) uh-huh, and um, I think that, you know, I've probably had these statements like this said before, but I just didn't understand the gravity or what they meant or associated things with racism, where versus now maybe I'm more aware of the mistreatment, and instead of saying, oh, it was just a person being rude, oh, no, this is a white person who is practicing abuse on a person of color because that's what they like to do. So I don't know if it's that I'm a little bit more um, aware. For some particular reason, I get these races doing it when I'm with my children more than when I'm with myself. Like all a lot of incidents, it's always. I don't know if that makes me more vulnerable to them. I don't know what it is, um, which I also find very strange. I think you should expect we're under a system of racism, white supremacy. What will be my concern is. What do you do to a person who is uh, uh, 
I forgot the term, the, the, the insult that you uh, were was confronted with. Uh, that would be back to sign on what, what are you going to do to that person, to, to uh, a person who uh, is whatever that insult you were talking about. But that, that should be expected under the system of racial white supremacy, that white people are going to uh, insult you in front of your children, in front of whoever. But you by yourself, it doesn't matter. That's what they do. Unless I've been misled. I agree. I, you have to expect um, to be abused, um, the verbal abuse. And fr frankly, you know, that was a sly one because the average black person, I think white people know, knows nothing about eugenics. That, that could have been one of those she was throwing out there and didn't even think you would pick up on it, you know, but you're, you're because you're listening, you know, and you know this, this information, you know exactly what she was talking about. And um, you got to come to expect it. I mean, I would have cracked up if that happened to me. I would have started laughing because, you know, I would have been trying to ask him some questions. Excuse me, uh, what did you mean by that? Because, uh, I mean, I, I, I love to have that. I mean, that's what I, I, I my kids is with me. I tell y'all all the time. You see what daddy be telling you? You know, that, I mean, that's my teaching moment. I mean, uh, I wish that happened. <laughs> but um, definitely, man, I feel for you. And uh, I didn't hear what you, if you said where you live, but, man, that's terrible. Man. That's just, wow. I was going to say I agree with both of the um, previous callers as well. What I found, just to answer your question, is um, I find that the climate is as such that white people are more comfortable talking about race um, in a way that I, I know that has become much more intense, especially during this particular um, presidential election. Um, even on my job, we don't really talk about racial things. That's just something that's not done. And I had a coworker who, for the first time, just started talking about white privilege and the fact that he comes from a quote-unquote privileged background. And I just wanted to stop and say, you mean white supremacist, but I'm on the job, so I have to be codified. But I just actually chuckled to myself because he's considered one of the nicest and nicer uh, young white males on the job. And like I said, no one really makes it a point to talk about that. When there's incidents in the news, they really don't talk about that. Sometimes the black people will get together and discuss things away from the white folks. But um, essentially, white people don't really discuss those things on my job. And this literally like two days ago, he, he actually said that. And I just chuckled to myself and I was just like, mm, white supremacist. And I just kept it moving. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to actually ask him about it. But I said, no, nope, I'm on the job and I'm not trying to be walked out of here. So I just kept my comment to myself. But I totally um, agree. And again, I feel for you, too, to be in that sort of environment as well. I do wish you the best. Um, and lastly, man, with um, this, like Raj just said, with the, um, the whole Trump thing, I'm noticing that a lot of white people are very emboldened, which is why I'm a firm Trump supporter, and I would love for him to be the president because I just can't wait to see. But um, just to get back to the thing, I expect that you should be expecting to see this a lot coming up very soon, a whole lot. Absolutely. I know Mr. Fuller said before, uh, and if other folks have commentary workplace racism, uh, feel free. But I know Mr. Fuller has said uh, that you should uh, always uh, expect incorrect treatment. And I know for some people, they uh, that just seems uh, a bit much to go around with that 
way of thinking. Uh, and he said, you know, it should be. Uh, that's a terrible way uh, to exist uh, on the planet uh, and to think. But that's what it is. Uh, we're just in an environment where uh, abusing, mistreating uh, black people, uh, that is a joyous thing. Like, yes, we should all be uh, engaged in that. So just really uh, being prepared so that you're not surprised, you're not stunned. This is the world that we're in. This is what racism, white supremacy uh, is all about. And just it seems like you, you had, you know, your code in uh, where you were insulted, where you went to, to shop this place and black self-respect. I won't be making any purchases here, like just being codified in terms of how you want to deal with it. I think Thomas in New York was saying about, you know, if I'm going to ask questions, uh, this can be a great opportunity to teach my offspring about racism, white supremacy, or just to ask questions myself. This just confirms uh, what I already know to be the case. Uh, or even as Ross said, if I'm on the job, I do not want to lose uh, my ability to take care of myself and, and that sort of thing. So I'll be codified. Maybe I don't get to ask questions, but even there, I am informed. Uh, this further confirms what I've already said. Uh, and, you know, they I can just listen. Uh, I can listen, take some mental notes uh, about whatever the person is saying. But I mean, we are in an environment that is totally saturated. This is the dominant, dominant motivating force on the planet. So uh, it, it really is no surprise to me. And if anything, as, as I think a lot of our callers have said, I would expect uh, an increase in this sort of uh, overt uh, explicit uh, white terrorism, whether it's verbal or, you know, however else it's manifested. Um, I had a workplace racism incident and um, just speaking to piggyback off of what you said, it's um, one, one that I noticed was in the last two weeks I've talked to, I, I work in the healthcare industry um, and I deal with uh, assisting people in navigating health healthcare and um, things like that. And the white people that I talked to, there was at least on two occasions, I've had people basically blame Obama for everything. Every time we play that damn your Obama clip, I crack up because I've heard that basically the same thing um, on the job. And a couple of them on two occasions, they were like, vote for Trump. And I mean, like, they were, they were just like, I could just see them with their American flag in their window, you know, looking out the window and just vote for Trump. And I thought about it and I, oh, I've called, um, President Obama to David Dinkins president because he basically um, came in piggybacking off of George Bush's screw up and he's been getting the blame for that and for every other thing that's wrong in the world ever since. Just And that was the same thing that happened with David Dinkins in New York. So that was one workplace racism incident. The other one was um, last week, a couple days ago uh, at my job, they actually uh, let go a whole slew of people. And the vast majority of people from my department that were let go, I believe it was a total of 12, the vast majority of them were black. And I found that to be a pattern um, when they, this is the first time they've gone through this sort of thing. And for what I was told, they actually let go a bunch of people from different departments. They were, uh, uh, they called it quote unquote trimming the fat. That's the metaphor they use um, as far as uh, the discussion that was going, going around in the company. Um, and essentially they were trying to save money and, out of our department, the vast majority of people in that department are black, and the vast majority of people that go specifically from our department was black. When we were asking questions about how things were going to happen because they were planning to open a location um, in Arizona, and people were asking, well, once you open that location, are you going to 
do something here as far as shutting shutting the New York location down and um you know transitioning to people who are w- willing or able to move over there over and those who can't just are out of a job. I've been through that before, um and we were getting all these vague answers and no one was being forthcoming. And weirdly enough, the uh, VP of the entire department is an Asian woman, and I had never seen her frazzled. I've been there now for about eight months, almost nine months. Um, and I've never seen her frazzled. This was the first time I saw her frazzled and I knew that she wasn't being forthcoming or honest just from her body language. Cause I read a lot of books on body language and actually wrote an essay utilizing body language. Cause I just, I, I, her whole, her whole countenance was essential, essentially deceptive. And she was dodging questions. And I just said, well, the plantation is shifting. I talked to a couple of my black coworkers. I said, the plantation is shifting. Um, New York city is a place that's high rent. It's a startup company. And we've been slowly seeing them shift to a more corporate type of environment when in the beginning they were saying this was not something that they wanted to do. They're doing a lot of things different from a lot of other companies, but slowly we're seeing them get to a more corporate-like atmosphere, which is what I said is coming. Um, and I, I told my black coworkers, I said, well, I never stop looking for a job. I said, I never get comfortable on any job because I know that anything can happen at any time. So I keep my resume afloat at all times. I update it regularly. I do all of that. So I said, um, they can do whatever they have to do because I'm going to do whatever I have to do if it comes to it. Um, and it was funny because when I discussed this with my wife, uh, she, in, she, like I said earlier, earlier um, in last year, actually, I, I discussed the fact that we had gone to the, the company Christmas party and all these people told all these wonderful things about me and how good I was doing on the job, including the um, VP who I was just discussing. And she's like, oh, this is such a nice place. I said, mm-mm. I said, I said, white supremacy runs everything. And I said, I see things. I just don't comment because I don't have to. I said, the thing is that because I am less confused than the vast majority of people on my job, I see things that they don't. I analyze those things. I keep notes on those things and I'm not getting comfortable anywhere, no matter how quote unquote nice the position seems. And, um, I was able to talk to a couple of black people on the job and, uh, they were in agreement with me because, uh, and again, wow, another pattern I just picked up on this job too is that uh, there's another a black female. Um, she's a uh, uh, mar- married homosexual female, and she was the head of the IT department. She ended up training another non-white female. She's a black Latino, and then um, another white female. And essentially, she created the entire uh, wiring system for the, for the IT. She does all the programming, any problems with the system. She's the one that handles it and everything. And she was one of the people that they let go. And she was basically like considered like the head cheese as far as everything that was happening in regards to the internet, any service issues, problems like that. She would, she um, did the entire network for the company and they had her train her replacements and she had no idea she was going to get caught up in this suite, but she ended up getting swept out the door as well. And that took me back to the previous incident where I had the black female that was working in the sales department, facilitated getting that set up, gave them a uh, different scripts that the sales reps could use when they were selling healthcare to, um, to, to the people who would eventually become members. And for all the work she did, they got her out of there just because she was pregnant and that they didn't want to basically have her have to take off from maternity leave shortly thereafter getting the job. So they just basically, you know, threw her out in the cold. And I'm just finding that to become a pattern in, in this job. 
So, again, the fact that I might be doing an exceptional job means nothing. I don't ever take that in, in, any, in any way as uh, some sort of, like, I'm special, like they're not going to get rid of me. I just look at it like, hey, you know, whenever my time comes, I'll deal with it. But I'll keep you posted on how things develop because I'll see how it rolls. Eventually, uh, we're planning, they're planning to move my department to another building, and the lease is going to be up on that building in about three months from what I was told. And I have a feeling that, that around the t- that time is when everything is going to hit the fan. So I'll keep you posted on either whether I get another job and just transition out of that before that hits the fan or if I'm there at that time and what transpires. Uh, thank you very much for taking my call. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. We can hear you. Uh, yeah, this is uh, the guy that wrote in about uh, where the white guy uh, told me to sit down, and uh, I refused. Um, so I got fired from that job, um, and uh, they said it was for attendance. Um, and uh, I I knew it was coming. Um, the only thing I didn't like was that uh, – they had me work the shift and then fired me like 15 minutes before the shift ended. And, uh, yeah, that was pretty much it. Um, I was, uh, also mentioned that I was taking college courses and, uh, just to add a tidbit to the question that Thomas, uh, asked, <clears throat> my uh, major is human service and in my disability and human profession class, uh, the professor told us a uh, black professor at that, uh, informed us that receiving uh, misinformation, being misinformed, creates a disability. And uh, thanks for taking the call. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. I'm. I am not surprised. Uh, you know that is unfortunate, but not surprised. Uh, that's been uh, my experience, particularly if they, you know, a white person feels, you know, this, this uppity Negro has the audacity to, to challenge me, uh, on a job or to ask questions. Uh, they tend to conspire and, and they will, whatever we need to do, uh, to get rid of this Negro. That is pretty common, uh, in terms of, uh, racist tax. And it seems like you expected it. it seemed like this was not a shock that you, you felt like that they were, they were conspiring to, uh, terminate your employment there. Um, Wow, I think uh, if I remember the details from that, they I think we were saying that kind of last time to expect that they uh, white people just go back to work. Uh, it's not like in any of these situations, if you're able to successfully navigate the situation, they generally just uh, that just encourages them, as Mr. Fuller says, to stay up late uh, and get more strategies uh, to go to work on you. Just standard operating procedure for racists. And unfortunately, man, I, I learned a long time ago that if they call you in a meeting and tell you sit down, regardless how they say it, just sit down, you know, you know what's up, you know, ask, play, play the role you got to play. I mean, it, it is what it is if you want to keep your job. I mean, it, um, that's how, it, unfortunately, how it works. Had you missed, uh, you know, you said it was attendance. Had you Had you missed any days in comparison to what the company policy is? Uh, nah, um, like all the employees were shocked that, uh, I was fired, uh, because I was, uh, I would say, uh, kind of like a, a bright spot, uh, amongst the employees, uh, because I was always positive and, uh, just encouraging to, uh, the people around there. There's a lot of foolishness going on. Uh, but it was a, um, 
we were about to uh, receive a pay increase and there was a new attendance policy coming out. So, uh, like discretion, you know, like, uh, it's talked about on the program, the word discretion, um, the attendance policy was up to their discretion until the new policy kicked in. So like, you know, I knew it was coming. In fact, it was another incident that happened. Um, like, you know, a guy was trying to like fight me or something like that on the job or whatever. And, uh, so we in the office talking to the guy and, um, you know, I actually told him, I said, uh, well, you know, I feel like my time here is coming to an end, you know, so it, it was no surprise to me. I was actually, uh, glad, uh, it was Walmart actually. Um, and I just want to share this tidbit. Um, it was like very demeaning. Like, so every day before you go in, uh, third shift. So you have a meeting. Um, and they talk about sales and, you know, how much money they're making and whatever, whatever. But it was this, uh, it's this chant that they had you do before the shift starts. And, uh, you know, you chant the words of the company and, uh, you know, you say Walmart and it's, it was just bizarre, but yeah, that was, that was it. Uh, I know 909 would put that in his folder uh, where he said Walmart is the worst, uh, that we should never go there. I think Walmart and Joe in D.C. both have, have made that very plain, as have uh, other people. I know uh, Jonathan Crawford uh, II, uh, certainly, uh, I think he has the best case of anyone uh, that, you know, black people should definitely, uh, Walmart is not an ally and we should try to minimize uh, to the best degree that we can any spending or, or giving them a nickel. Um, but yeah, that I have a whole tab on my, uh, my browser just to collect articles related to discretion. I've said that over and over again, uh, that is anytime. If you see that in, uh, the policy and procedure for your job, you should highlight it, uh, underline it anything pertaining to discretion. And I would even ask questions because that I have concluded that generally just means feel free to practice racism, white supremacy to whites. Uh, anytime discretion pops up, whether that's enforcement officials, uh, if that's prosecuting attorneys, uh, managers on a job, anyway, that that term, it just means, hey, we do not have to have a set policy that applies uniformly to everyone. Feel free. Anything that you want to do to the niggers, up to you. Whatever you feel like doing that day. It is companies. Uh, it is company approved already. Do what you like. That's what that term means. That's the way that you should think about it. Be very leery anytime you see that in uh, policy procedure for a job that you're on. Uh, did uh, we miss anybody? Anybody who had a, a hand up who had something related to workplace racism that has not been able to share at all? Uh, I thought I heard a female, too. Did I hear a female? Yes, hello? Yes, ma'am. If you could speak up. Okay. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, I work in the federal government, and um, there was, I don't know if anyone mentioned anything about, like, uh, the lack of uh, black uh, history um, events that uh, uh, took place in February, but there, where I work in my agency, there literally were no events, and I was really surprised by that. Um, there was just an initial announcement of, on February 1st of the president's declaration of what they call now African-American History Month. Um, but 
and during the entire month there was there were no programs whatsoever. Um, however, at the end of the month on leap day on the 29th, they had a program basically talking about uh, the um, what do you call the uh, the current construction of a new museum and you know what the uh, updates are and I just found that really interesting just to talk about what the um, updates are of a building that's going up but I wasn't sure if anyone else noticed that and I noticed that this has been a trend for a few years now it's as though they're trying to erase our legacy in this country so that's what I wanted to comment on thank you for sure. Now that you uh, mentioned, I would say yeah. I, I was just gonna say, man, she's lucky, man, because I've worked jobs where I was forced to participate in black history, <laughs> and I hated it. And um, man, I wish that it did exist. I had a year where we hosted um Jackie Robinson's son, and it was like this big hoopla, and I'm running around to get all this stuff done for him. It was another year where. I had to order the food. Oh, man, we want fried chicken. We want ribs. I mean, it was the white people, man. I, I hate it. I'm, I wish I had that experience. You're lucky. I remember, I think Thomas in New York shared uh, about that on the program. I think he gave us the details. I was thinking the same thing. Like, I, I'm reflecting on my own experience. I don't think I've been on a job where they like had a program or something uh, to recognize uh, Black History Month or I guess you now African American History Month. I don't, I don't, nothing that I can remember off top uh, where they've done anything. Uh, although that in my experience might be a good thing. As Thomas said, uh, I, I would expect them to be pretty tacky uh, about it to say we're going to have watermelon day uh, or, you know, Kool-Aid day for black. That's the sort of thing that I would expect uh, if they're going to do it. Or even even if they had the guys that they're going to try to do something like, yeah, we're going to, you know, recognize, you know, Barack Obama or the, you know, accomplishments of any. I would just expect something really tacky. Uh, and trashy or they would come to you as the black person and say well why don't you organize you know an event for us to do black history month and you know just that uh i I would be all right if they didn't do anything for it that would be fine by me uh there was uh, a male caller that i heard as well you were going to comment i guess you can be uh our final uh Commentary for work or workplace racism and the program. The male caller that was speaking up as well. Uh, yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Um, yes. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. I had a, a few observations from this past week. Uh, the, the first two, um, they happened pretty much close together. Um, in this department that I'm working in, it's mainly like well. Myself, I'm the only male person, but uh, only black male. And there are two uh, black females, and the others are uh, mainly white women. And uh, there's this one white woman, I think she was practicing uh, racism. And the reason I say that was because, like, the way that I interact with one of the other black females, uh, you know, through the the result of the victimization, uh, she'll make a certain type of comment toward me and <laughs> the, the, uh, this, this certain white woman, you know, uh, very, uh, sneaky. She'll walk over toward the black female and say, 
well, I know she wouldn't say that to me because I'm her sister, you know, whatever that even meant. But I guess I interpreted that as, you know, I'm a, I'm a white person. I get different results um, uh, from how she behaves towards me. So uh, there was a, 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 a black male who I think he has, well, apparently he has uh, mental health issues. I wanted to bring that up because I know Dr. Wilson was well uh, 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 an expert in that area. And I guess he hasn't been taking his meds or whatnot. And he's been uh, causing some issues with some of the females in the uh, the building. And I think that I was being used to be pitted up against him. So uh, one of the first times I decided to get up and walk away because I, I just had a feeling that this same white woman was trying to get me to uh, utilize me to be some kind of a bodyguard or some kind of protector for her. So I just got up and went to the bathroom. So I just let her deal with the customer. And she was saying something about, oh, she was uncomfortable. And I'm, start, I'm starting to see all of the other uh, white women, you know, cater to her needs and her sensitivity. And uh, I just thought she was blowing it all out of proportion, but apparently later on in the week, this guy, I guess he uh, did something majorly incorrect towards um, one of the black females and one of the uh, white women. And from my understanding, I was told four enforcement officials, four of them for one person told him to uh, leave the building because I guess he said something sexually inappropriate to uh, the black female. Uh, it was her and a white woman. And uh, he was escorted out of the building. And there was a court order constructed within, what, 24 hours? That this person, <laughs> they named his, his first, middle, and last name. And they were setting specifications that he could only be there on a um, law business and, or something like that, or he can see his uh, court file documents. And, you know, this person, this person, you know, very melanated. And I was walking back into that same area, and a black female said, I had scared him, you know. She said, you know, I was scared when I seen you because she thought, I guess, I was him. So, uh, you know, I was like, wow, man, she was real uh, petrified. Said she couldn't even get up and go to the bathroom. And she's talking to somebody on the phone saying that she's afraid to go outside. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was a pretty uh, hectic event. Up there, if I could share one last thing, I was, uh, talk I had a conversation with that, that same white male who likes to uh, be tricky with words. And he just kept using it. He, he kept saying black lives don't matter. And he, he, he made, I, I don't, I don't want to call it a mistake because he said it like on the first time when he was talking about that Super Bowl Beyonce formation thing and Black Panthers, Malcolm X. And he said it again, black lives don't matter, but I mean black lives matter. And he, <laughs> he called, uh, the uh, Black Panthers and Malcolm X militant 
So then I asked him a question. I said, well, since you was in the Navy, you know, you support the military, aren't, aren't you militant? So he stood up. He stood up and he said, well, you know, what do you mean? So I asked him the same question. And I ain't helping him with the answer either. And then he was like, well, I mean, not in a physical sense. I mean, it just depends on what you're doing. And it didn't make sense what he was saying. So he just started to walk away. And that was pretty much the end of that conversation. But that's, that's all I had. Beautiful, beautiful. Always great when you can respond with a question, and particularly when your question results in a suspected racist exiting. <laughs> that is tremendous. Like, uh, I'm sure he didn't, uh, I wouldn't classify that as a mistake either. I'm sure he was doing, particularly the guy that you've mentioned, this is the same guy that, like, uh, would put the television on Fox and take the batteries out to try and get on black people's nerves deliberately. Is this the same person? Yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I don't regard that as a mistake. Just being tacky and trashy. That's that is what it means to be a white person trying to see if you can get people riled up and that sort of thing. Seems like he enjoy. That's what I said before. <laughs> they they look to do this sort of thing on the job, really everywhere, but jobs, workplace especially, uh, because they know if you respond a certain way, like, hey, not only will this I uh, get some enjoyment for my day. We can look about getting this Negro fired uh, if he or she, if they respond and get rowdy and that sort of thing. But the first thing that uh, was traumatizing for me just to hear that white women, they are phenomenal uh, at playing the victim. Uh, I'm so afraid. Oh, my gosh. Uh, He was going to rape me or he was going to brutalize me. And we need to get the entire police department here to defend and protect me and. Oh, man, I'm, I'm afraid of every black person here now. You, anybody, 12-year-old could come. Oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm just terrible. I can't even go to the bathroom. They are phenomenal uh, at that. That's why I definitely encourage for folks to be very cautious, very leery uh, on jobs. I think Mr. Fuller, I think even I, a retired firefighter, and some others have, have cautioned people about being, if you get caught in a situation where you're going to be alone in an area uh, with white women, I mean, it's just an extremely uh, dangerous situation. Uh, they are great. Uh, in my view, no one does it better uh, in being able to galvanize large numbers of white people to come and practice direct violence uh, or the threat of direct violence uh, against black people. It just can take one white woman uh they can change the whole policy based on that just her being afraid like i'm even i'm even scared of you we can have a whole change in in workplace policy and procedure now based on this fearful uh white woman saying you know whatever whatever this person said to her allegedly uh be careful (laughs) be careful uh i have seen that white people white people in contrast all of the reports that we heard about black people being terrorized and all of the victims saying that they didn't think white people were taking it seriously it's been my experience that they do take any and all concerns allegations founded or no from white women they take those very seriously uh, and act on them and it can have grave repercussions for any and all black people in the immediate area uh with that uh we did our three uh we will wrap uh we will be back tomorrow uh Thomas in New York wanted us to have Professor Shaw on the program. This is a white guy uh, who apparently sounds very much, I guess he can convince a lot of folks that he is a non-white person uh, with the way that he talks about racism. Uh, he teaches a uh, college professor, but he also writes and, and does commentary uh, on racism. He should be here tomorrow evening, uh, normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. 
uh, Pacific. Uh, always enjoy speaking to whites. Uh, we can get our questions together. Uh, look forward uh, to Sunday evening. Uh, if you have gripes, complaints, questions, uh, guest suggestions, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail. Dot com And uh, Thomas, I know he had a question. We could do that tomorrow because we'll be back uh, then so you can get your question in uh, tomorrow evening. Uh, thanks for everyone who tuned in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Sunday evening. Uh, again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, you do not want to be around intoxicated whites uh, or even intoxicated non-white people. If you're going to be a driver, passenger, pedestrian, uh, you want to be lucid, sober, clear thinking. You never know when it's Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson, uh, who's going to be the one that's pulling you over and asking questions. Uh, whites can totally ruin your life in a matter of minutes. Uh, keep that in mind at all times in the way that we go about uh, doing our business uh, on a planet saturated with racism, white supremacy. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning.